Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a seventh generation witch. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, is there evidence? Hey guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's your host Adam Sane and producer Rob, and this is the 100th and a half episode. This is the we just posted not too long ago a show that was our roundtable for everyone inside the studio, and this show is everyone that is on the Skype calls that we did. Like we said before, we have people that live all across the country, and we just wanted to get. Uh, Get some of our guests, former guests on that we've really enjoyed, and we're going to have them on here on, on this recording that we actually recorded before the roundtable portion. So it's going to be like traveling back in time. And thank you guys for listening, and we're going to start off with a very special guest who's been on for four times, and that is Mr. Adam Gorightly. And we'll be back on the flip side. All right, guys, welcome to the Skype call edition 
of the Conspiranormal 100th episode extravaganza. Woohoo. And what we're doing is we're going to have various guests that have been on the show usually about three or more times, although I do have a couple of exceptions to the rule. And we're actually recording this on a separate night because the guest that we have on could not be here on Saturday, but I really wanted to get the get him on, uh, one of our favorite guests from real early on, and that is Mr. Adam Go-Rightly. Welcome back to Good Spirit Normal, Adam. Thanks for having me on, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's always fun. Uh I just wanted to kind of go over what shows I've had you on in the past. Mm-hmm. And Good. F- you, can re- you can refresh my memory. I know it's been, <laughs> I know at least two or three times. Uh, the first time we had you on was, I think, like October 2012. And that was actually episode 12. And we talked a, a lot about, like, I, that was mostly about your book, uh, uh, Happy Trails to High Weirdness. God, okay, yeah, that, that's about the time it came out. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. We talked about Jeff Turner. We talked about. Uh, we hit on the Thornley stuff, and we also talked a little bit about like uh, Doctor Lily from the uh, original Altered States. We mm-hmm. talked about that, and there's so much that we talked that was so much involved there. That I also read, I think it read the same time that I read the, uh, the, uh, high, high weirdness book was also at the same time I read the beast of Adam go rightly. Okay. And so we talked a little bit about some of that stuff as well. Uh, I had you back on for episode 17. I think that was the next month. I'm pretty sure that was November of that year. And we talked a lot about Montauk project and we talked about, uh, Charles Manson stuff is where we kind of got a lot of that covered. Uh, then in, <laughs> I think I believe it was like July, 2013, I had you back on for episode 33, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and that was at the point of time that we were on that everybody was mentioning the whole 33rd parallel, which we I guess. We were probably talking about Downard. Yeah, we were talking about <laughs> Downard. That was, that was the one, that was the person that we were talking about. It's kind of a short show, but kind of short and sweet. And the last time I had you on actually was on my birthday in 2014. That was episode 57, and we talked about the Discordianism book. Okay. At that time, yeah. the uh, the print the Historia Discordia. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a cool little interview about Carrie uh, Thornley and uh, Greg Hill and Robert Anton Wilson and all all kinds of good stuff there. So that's the kind of your history on Conspiranormal. Okay, <laughs> and of course, I first heard you. I believe I was telling Rob before uh, we got started that I heard you on a show called Out There Radio, which these oh yeah, guys that goes and, way back. Yeah, that was like 2006, I think. There were mm-hmm. these guys that are actually not too far from us in Athens, Georgia, and that's actually like the they're actually also the guys that I first heard about the Georgia Guidestones from. Which okay, that's Ra- some, Raymond Wiley. Yeah, yeah. And whoever that character was, he was. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember had, now. It's been, it's been a, a buddy. long time. But yeah. they were on the yeah. uh, the Athens radio station, and I mm-hmm. just like I think just looking for stuff to listen to, you know. And I found out about you. Listened to your your old podcast that you used to do, and yeah, kind of getting into Those all are pretty the, wild. <laughs> kind of getting into the whole like conspiracy weirdness 
Yeah. And uh, so I just wanted to, you know, bring you on and just kind of talk about some, just some weird shit, you know? <laughs> As life I, do. I, I suppose I'm the man, huh? <laughs> you, you are the man. You are the crackpot historian, sir. Absolutely. Uh, I really wanted to kind of start out and just kind of like find out what you're working on now. What's, uh, what's uh, you're kind of after the Historia Discordia book. I really hadn't heard from you for a while. So I just kind of wanted to get an idea of what it is that you're working on now. Well, a few things, a couple of UFO related books. And, uh, one of those is like a collection of all my UFO writings over the years, including some new stuff I've been working on. Uh, like there's one piece I've been working on for, oh my God, it's been years just because I've it's kind of uh, set it to the side a few times and working on other book projects. And it's a long uh, piece about uh, Dulce, you know, the whole Dulce base yeah. mythos called Deconstructing Dulce. I've over, uh, I think I started this around 2008, <clears throat> I met a couple of uh, curious uh, characters that uh, were there at the very beginning of the Dulce story. And so that's kind of where it started. And I've been, I'm trying to wind it up now after kind of working on and off on this thing for, uh, since in 2008, they have it ready for this book, which I hope to complete. Uh, sometime soon. I was hoping by the end of this year, but that's not going to happen. So uh, maybe sometime next year I'll have it finished and maybe published. But okay. we'll we'll see. I'm not <laughs> be hurry. I want to do it right. So I have that. Then there's a uh, second UFO book. I'm getting UFOs out of my system. I guess I don't want to talk <laughs> too much, but it's a book on the uh, old school UFO contactees. Oh, nice. And, yeah. I, yeah, I have a uh, partner I'm collaborating on this book. But it's a little early to talk too much about that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a good one, too, I think. So a couple of UFO books. Then uh, uh, also another uh, Discordian-related title. I'm going to start digging into, you know, in past shows we talked the whole you know story, how I – I uh, came upon the Discordian archives that were passed to me and all the book projects that came out of those. And the, there's a website, Historia Discordia, where I've posted a lot of the materials. And within the archives are a bunch of letters, you know, from Kerry uh, Thornley and Greg Hill, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, Robert Shea, Wilson's co-author with Illuminatus and a few other people. And, uh, you know, I started taking a look at those at one point. Will these make a book? And I think they will make an entertaining book because there's kind of a theme that runs through there, really the kind of narrative about where all their heads were at in the uh, late 60s and the 70s when during that whole Illuminatus period when that was being uh, written and published Yes. So, yeah, th there's that book, a book of letters, and that that's the main three things I'm working on now. I guess that would be like a companion piece of the Astoria Discordia? Sure. Yeah, most definitely. What kind of things are, 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 in, those, are in those letters? Like, what's the, kind of like their thought processes? Oh, well, shoot. 
And it's going to take some thought, you know, which ones to include, what not to include, you know, because, you know, how letters are. Some are filled with a lot of minutiae. It's not uh, necessarily relevant. And there's some total gems, you know, where a three-page letter where everything is valuable and would make sense to the reader. But... Yeah, we have, we have a dog in here. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say that uh, activated him? Uh, he's a he's an MK Ultra dog. Okay. Uh, could, did he know uh, the son of Sam? <laughs> he might. He might. Is he Sam? <laughs> he might be that, yeah, that dog. Was, he might that... be the dog that triggered it. Right. He's not. He's not a Rottweiler though. So he's. <laughs> I'm sure he's all good. I don't know that <laughs> But, yeah, getting back to those letters, they go back. Let's see. Uh, Some of them go back as far as, uh, like, 61 or 62. Wow. And then there's the early letters where Hill and Thornley were uh, developing the Principia Discordia and sharing ideas. A whole bunch of those letters, some of the early Discordian writings, and then it kind of evolves into the 60s counterculture, a lot of the stuff that was going on. Then also all those guys during the period in the late 60s were producing their own little newsletters that uh, a lot of people don't know about. There's a lot of those. Maybe those can be woven in into you know the narrative. Then as we progress into the... Uh, 70s, you know, or through the 60s with the Garrison investigation, and as you get to the mid-70s, uh, Thornley has kind of pretty much uh, gone off the deep end, and there's some of those letters between he and Robert Anton Wilson and his other friends where, like, you know, he's uh, accusing Robert uh, Anton Wilson of uh, plotting against him, and yeah. you know, so you see the whole, whole kind of arc of the uh, story, you know. And so, yeah, I, I think, and I'll have to, uh, it'll be something where I'll have to put commentary in here and there to uh, just explain certain things. Do you think that uh, Thornley was messing with Jim Garrison? Because it's funny, like, uh, I, I well, remember reading. Well, yeah, he was. <laughs> I remember reading about, uh, I read, finally like broke down and read on the trail of the assassins after owning it for probably like 20 years. Oh yeah. And, uh, and there, it's just so funny to, to see Carrie Thornley just like mentioned in that book. It's, it's, it's interesting. Well, it, it's all pretty much inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. And I've covered some of that on my Historia Discordia page. Uh, now and then I'll the, look into different things like there's the great, you know, thing that Garrison started that he's claiming uh, Thornley was a CIA agent. And I read a, wrote a rather long post about right. that, uh, oh, a few months ago, called Was Kerry Thornley CIA, where I pretty much, I think, debunk that. There was a, uh, <clears throat> Garrison never really showed any proof, but a few years, like in 2006, there was uh, Joan Mellon's book on the uh, Garrison Investigation, I think, uh, what's the title? The title escapes me at the moment, but yeah, it was 2006, and at the very beginning of the book, it says that uh, uh, she names 
Kerry Thornley is being involved with the, you know, the uh, conspirators, supposed conspirators out of New Orleans, and that he was a CIA agent, and she had a CIA document to prove it. Later in the book, she calls it a a uh, defense and or a DOD document. <clears throat> and so when I read that in 2006, I went, whoa. Maybe there is something to all this, you know, if she actually has documentation that proves it. Right. So I emailed her back then, and uh, I was like, uh, no, I emailed her a few years later when I started uh, writing that Caught in the Crossfire book, maybe 2009, and uh, inquired about the uh, documentation she was uh, referring to. And she uh, responded, and she said she'd get me a copy of it. Uh, but she, at the time, she said she was uh, had just gone in for some type of uh, medical procedure or something, so she was convalescing. But she'd get it to me later, and uh, so I didn't hear, hear back. I emailed her like half a dozen times with no response. So I uh, <laughs> figured she uh, might have looked into me a little bit more in my uh, first Thornley book. How I was somewhat uh, negative of, of uh, Garrison. And so anyway, over the years, man, I've been looking for that document and really uh, only uncovered it after I wrote the the Caught in the Crossfire book. Uh, Somebody pointed me towards a, uh, I think it's the Baylor University Library in uh, Texas, where I found this uh, document she was (laughs) talking about. And you can see it on the uh, website. I go through it uh, pretty painstakingly, and there's no mention of the CIA in it. Uh, she's just uh, connecting dots that aren't there. Reading between the lines. Totally. As she so, thinks, yeah. And so, uh, where was I going? Oh, so, uh, with the Garrison book, I'll do some more posts I've been planning to on uh, Historia Discordia, going through Trail of Assassin, uh, picking out different stuff, but, uh, boy, he's just, I mean, it's, <laughs> the, the it's, Kennedy assassination is like such a, it's, it, it becomes such a quagmire because it's just like, well, who did Garrison, what then? And, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it, it kind of gets crazy after a while. Garrison's, you know, considered the gospel to a lot of people. And he sort of right. was to me too, back in the day. Cause I got into, turned on to conspiracy research, uh, with like Mae Russell, if you know who she is, yeah. yeah, way back when, like in the uh, '80s, she had a radio show, and she was, you know, like the godmother of conspiracy research, and she was heavily into uh, JFK assassination. That's how she really started by going through the Warren Commission report way back when, and so uh, she did some good research. But you know. Uh, as the years progressed, man, she was connecting everybody to everything, <laughs> it seemed like. and But uh, she always spoke so highly of Garrison, you know. I thought, okay, this guy's the uh, district attorney of New Orleans, must be legit, you know. And he put this all these theories together, which later evolved into uh, the JFK SS, or the film JFK by Oliver Stone. You know, so... Um, over time, I became interested in Thornley and looked deeper into his story because he was prosecuted by Garrison. And 
really going through all these books and everything's over the years, I think uh, uh, Garrison might have been on the right track with uh, a few things, but he got uh, most of the stuff all wrong. He was uh, and he was, you know, just seeing things that he wanted to see. Right, and I think too with Garrison, like I think he was probably on the right track. Where people I think have a problem with him was that I think he was a product of his environment. I mean, he was a DA, but he was also a DA in New Orleans, which is a pretty, even, I mean, at that time, and, and, and still is kind of notoriously corrupt place. So I think he kind of like played the game as he, well, as he saw it there, but his tactics probably weren't the best, and he probably did leave himself open to attacks. That's probably why no one ever tried to kill the guy. They just would try to discredit him. He well, peop- easy. people who would challenge him, like uh, Thornley, uh, yeah. he he got a you know put a perjury charge <laughs> on him because uh, he didn't believe what Thornley was uh, saying, but he didn't really have any proof to uh, you know he never brought Thornley to trial, and it's the same thing you know you look at a lot of these guys uh, when you really get down deep into the weeds, you know, uh, even somebody like David Ferry, who most people are convinced <laughs> was involved. I'm, I'm not so sure these days that, you know, getting deeper into it. What Garrison came across was uh, intelligence operations going on there in, in New, New Orleans. Orleans. There yeah. definitely were some spooks that were connected to, uh, you know, the CIA and the anti-Castro uh, movement but uh you know i think uh, garrison bringing the jfk assassination into that uh eh, he he didn't really have have much uh well, much of a case there if you really look into it well i mean i think with oswald as far as new orleans garrison always kind of typified that as his whole case was was that they were sheep dipping oswald as the mm-hmm. assassin and i've kind of gone back and looked at that uh, stuff I've read from you and other researchers that, and I've kind of gone back and looked at that and thought, you know, that's probably not what they were doing. Oswald probably was working with them, but it was probably a totally independent thing that had nothing to do with the assassination. That probably came a few months later and they probably used that operation, whatever he was doing in uh, new Orleans to infiltrate leftist groups or whatever. Mm -hmm. They probably used that against him later on after he was dead. But like it probably actually had actually nothing to do with the uh, the assassination itself. Now, yeah, that's one thing that you know Garrison uh, claimed that uh, uh, Oswald was uh, yeah manipulated by that group and was probably a uh, spy of some sort. And so yeah, there was something there. Uh, certainly, uh, in my research, it. Uh, Definitely looks like, you know, going back to his time in the Marines that he was grooming, being groomed to be a spy. And that's uh, he was definitely in in some kind of intelligence agency for sure. I mean, there's no doubt of that in my mind. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then he defects to uh, Soviet Union and (laughs) short time later, he's. Uh, he's back in the states and he's, is able to come back with his like Soviet wife, you know. Yeah, he's welcome right. back. I right. think he, the government even gave him a loan, so yeah, yeah, so definitely something going on there and, with and, and wasn't, Oswald. Wasn't E. Howard Hunt? Wasn't he 
uh, I've heard it recently that that Hunt was actually in charge of. He was actually at that Itsugi Air Force Base. I don't think at the same time Oswald and Thornley were there, but he was actually in charge of that program to send young men as fake defectors to the Soviet Union. Now, I know I've talked about that uh, to you, but uh, the information I had was not quite that in-depth. All I knew was that, you know, roughly during the same period that uh, Thornley and Oswald were at Atsugi, that uh, E. Howard Hunt was there as well, and that at Atsugi they were carrying out a lot of the uh, LSD testing, the MK Ultra type stuff, and uh, Thornley later uh, suspected that he'd been subject to, uh, you know, the MK Ultra program, and he thought Oswald had as well. So it was curious that uh, E. Howard Hunt was there at Atsugi. during that period, because it was one of the uh, major outposts for the CIA there in uh, Japan, in Asia. That's where they launched the U-2 flights out of. Right. But it uh, sounds like you've come across uh, more information that I'm Actually, not aware I, of. I, I think I got this from Wikipedia or somewhere that, that okay. or somebody would said that, that – or somewhere that I read it. Uh, maybe uh, E. Howard Hunt's son, who I'd love to get on the show, St. John. You know, he's been out there uh, saying a lot about, revealing a lot about what his dad had been doing. And uh, Hunt is a, probably an interesting, interesting guy, to say the least. I mean, well, you know, and there was his deathbed confession that right. his, his son uh, videotaping. I guess you can still find that stuff. Yeah, that's on YouTube. <clears throat> on the web. Yep. But, uh, you know, that might have been misdirection there. He's claiming uh, different players uh, in the assassination that uh, hadn't, uh, some of them really hadn't been mentioned before, like uh, Cord Meyer, yeah. CIA. He said Cord Meyer was in charge of the whole operation. <clears throat> so, and Cord Meyer was, uh, of course, you probably know that story, husband of Mary Pinchot Meyer, who was a lover of JFK who uh, <laughs> Timothy Leary claimed uh, uh, sh- he gave LSD to because she wanted to turn on certain world leaders. Oh, and that illuminate. was the same woman. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. So there's that connection. But, yeah, going back to uh, E. Howard Hunt, yeah, you know, Thornley, uh, we've been over this ground before, but uh, Thornley, you know, uh, suspected that he met E. Howard Hunt in New Orleans in the early 60s when he was there, you know, during that time period when Oswald was also there. But it was kind of, it was a hunt in disguise going by the name of Gary Kirsten, yeah. a.k.a. brother-in-law. And Thornley didn't realize uh, it was Hunt or someone he suspected was Hunt until the uh, 70s when he uh, came across, you know, the information about the Watergate burglars, one of whom was Hunt. And that's when a lot of those memories started. Of course, it might have been paranoid delusion, confabulation. Uh, who knows? But, you know, there's uh, – uh, it looks, you know, I mean, if you look at Kerry <laughs> Thornley's life, he's kind of like Oswald, too. He had all yeah. these strange coincidences uh, surrounding him, and he later goes off his rocker, you know. Was he delusional? To begin with, or did mind control, or you know the uh, persecution he got from uh, 
Garrison, I'll push him off the deep end. <laughs> do, do you know, um, are you familiar with uh, Judith Rury Baker? Yep. Uh, what do you think of her story that she was Oswald's lover? Do you think that she's she's truthful? Um, I don't buy her story, whether she's delusional or uh, untruthful or uh, who knows. I, but uh, yeah, I've looked into her quite a bit and I've uh, written a bit about her on once again on this story of Discordia's uh, site because she was uh, – and basically I've gone through a lot of the claims about uh, Thornley – you know, in Caught in the Crossfire, but also other stuff on that Historia Discordia site. And she was, uh, in her book, uh, you know, she claimed she saw Thornley with Oswald and whatever. The uh, dates don't really uh, jibe with when Thornley was there is, you know, gotcha. one problem with that. Hmm. Uh, and then there's the issue, you know, she claimed that uh, <laughs> she saw uh, Thornley with uh, – Marina Oswald were going to the Oswald house. That was another thing that uh, Garrison started, and I uh, I posted about that as well, you know. And uh, so she had her facts all wrong about that. Yeah, I think she's <laughs> either making shit up or is delusional. <laughs> I, if you had her on the show, no, I haven't. Okay, I've, I've thought I've, I've I've thought about reaching out and trying to because it's, it's an interesting story because she. I mean, it, some of it seems plausible to me, but that's why I wanted to get your 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 thoughts on it. Because well, the problem is, and she has a you know a lot of supporters. Yes, she does, and an equal number of uh, critics, and she's never really provided any real evidence to support it, other than she said that she knew him and Oswald, and they worked at the uh, same place for a period of time. And uh, basically, yeah, the coffee well, company. Uh huh. Yeah. And she has she has a pay stub. <laughs> you know, she posts. If you look at her book, there's all these things she uh, includes in the book, like a pay stub, pay stub for the Riley Coffee Company. But it's not really evidence that she had an intimate relationship with Oswald. She might have uh, known him, however briefly. But uh, a lot of, a lot of people have uh, looked closely at her claims and uh, uh, presented evidence where she is perhaps deceitful, but at the, you know, very uh, best, uh, she just hasn't really shown anything in my mind that confirms any of her story. Right. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Dulce-based stuff, um, specifically, and I'm sure you've, you've had to have covered this in your writing, um, Phil Schneider. Yeah, I was I was just uh, mentioning in the intro there. I've been working on that uh, Dulce uh, piece for my uh, forthcoming UFO book, <laughs> which which you may see next year. Who knows? Awesome. It, what do you, Fire away. Well, what do you think about Phil Snyder? I, I well, mean, you know, no, the, it, I it, remember seeing. I, of course, I, I found out about him after he died, but apparently, he died under really mysterious circumstances, and mm-hmm. I. I, I Sometimes with some of these guys, and this can kind of go into the Bond talk and the Philadelphia Experiment stuff too, I wonder how much someone like Phil Snyder might have been a mind control experiment himself. There was some fishy stuff around his uh, death, but uh, you know we don't know for sure that he was uh, 
killed as part of the conspiracy. But uh, <laughs> if you look at the uh, Phil Phil Schneider story, you got to go back uh, way before he showed up. He showed up like in the mid nineties, right? Telling his tale that he'd been at uh, Dulce and had been part of that firefight. You know, as the story goes. Let's back up before we get to the firefight. The uh, Dulce story really started with uh, Paul Benowitz yeah. back in the uh, uh, 80s, early 80s. Are you familiar with Benowitz? Yeah, I'm more familiar with him because of uh, now because of a documentary called Mirage Men. Mirage Men, yeah, right. Yeah. They, they talked to the evil agent Doty in that. They also talked to would, Walter Bosley. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Greg Bishop uh, is in that. Greg right. is friend and he's written a great book called project uh, beta all about that uh, whole benowitz episode yeah when i so, watched that i was like where's go rightly <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't as deep into yeah. it at that uh, bosley wasn't too happy with that documentary by the way uh he was less happy with the uh book i yeah. i think that i think the documentary was okay he didn't like some of the material in the book you can ask him when you talk to him yeah but uh, so let's go back with uh, Benowitz, and this was like uh, 1980 or so. He's in lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Has a company called Thunder Scientific. He created kind of high tech devices for the uh, government and the air force. You know, humidity measuring stuff for aircraft. And so he had this business. He started right there on by uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, like right on <laughs> a stone's throw from Kirtland. And so he started seeing weird shit uh, and filming it and also picking up electromagnetic signals, and he started recording all this stuff. And uh, it appears it was some, you know, secret uh, aircraft <clears throat> going on. He got pretty deep into... Uh, the cattle mutilation scene that was going on then in New Mexico and UFOs and uh, really began to believe over the time, over time that uh, there was an ET invasion. <clears throat> now the, the stuff he had filmed and recorded was indeed sensitive uh, stuff uh, that uh, the uh, Air Force intelligence and NSA were was concerned about how was he getting this, uh, recording these signals and figuring out what was going on there with the aircraft. And he had all this material, you know, and they were kind of nervous about that guy because if he could do it, you know, the Russians, uh, or whoever foreign nationals were a threat could, uh, might, uh, you know, get some of this same information from, you know, who knows, he could, uh, Benowitz could sell it or they could figure out what he was doing to uh, basically record these electromagnetic signals were basically codes that were being sent out that were related to, to the secret aircraft projects. Okay, so were, were these, were they flying, were these drones? Because in, the, in that documentary they, they make the, the point that they were probably flying drones and they well, just had them secret at that point. Uh, that might have been one of them. There's a lot of yeah. theories. There was testing some laser equipment, and you know they were seeing uh, s- uh, circular discs, you know, flying saucers. It could have been drones, but then uh, 
stealth bomber kind of comes up in the uh, story as well. Some of the descriptions right. and then some of the things, descriptions of some of the aircraft don't, don't match any of it. So there's, if you get into this and talk to different people, there's a lot of different theories. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't even go there. We need, if we're going to concentrate on Dulce. So yeah. he was, uh, so Benowitz became, you know, he was the UFO guy and, uh, Gabe Valdez, you familiar with that name? He was the, New Mexico trooper who was right. uh, involved in the cattle mutilations, and he knew uh, Benowitz. There had been a uh, cattle mu- mutilation conference in like '79 in Albuquerque, where they met, became friends. Benowitz went out on patrol. Uh, Valdez would go out at night <clears throat> chasing the cattle mutilators, and you're often, you know, uh, these strange aircraft or sometimes black helicopters. A lot of weirdness going on during that period. So anyway, at one point, this was like 1980, uh, Valdez got a call from the Cimarron office in uh, New Mexico. Sheriffs there, uh, Valdez was out in Dulce area. And they said they had this hysterical lady came in saying that uh, she'd been abducted, her and her son, by uh, spacemen <laughs> and that cattle had been uh, sucked up into the uh, spaceship in a tractor beam. <clears throat> this was 80, 1980 before a lot of these claims started. So uh, they, the Cimarron office called Valdez because he was the one who dealt with all the weird stuff. And Valdez called uh, Paul Benowitz to see if he could help. Benowitz was part of uh that flying saucer, <laughs> not flying saucer group, UFO group, APRO, aerial phenomena, whatever. They were a big UFO group back in the day, like MUFON. Yeah. And because uh, Valdez needed help, what to do with this young lady? She's out of her mind with this thing. She's hysterical. So uh, this gets pretty uh, complicated, but uh, or convoluted. But so Benowitz called Lee. Leo Sprinkle, who was at like Wyoming University, and he'd done regressions for ten years, and so he had some expertise. So they uh, got brought this lady to Benowitz's house and started regression sessions. And yeah, she revealed that that yeah they'd been abducted and uh, cow got sucked up in a tractor beam and they were doing awful things, and that uh, she later was transported. Uh, to a secret underground base. <clears throat> and Benowitz in time began to believe that the base was located in Dulce, in the Archuleta, Mes- Archuleta Mesa area, which is on the Hickoria Indian Reservation. And so he began, and so that's around the same time that uh, uh, Doty with the Air Force Intelligence uh, met with uh, Benowitz because Benowitz was contacting the uh, security there at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base telling about, you know, he got all these weird crafts and they were hovering over a weapons storage area that at that time had the, uh, you know, largest storage of nuclear components, I think, in the U.S. (laughs) So there was some concerns there. So Anyway, the whole thing was turned into a disinformation deal with Doty uh, encouraging Benowitz that, yeah, there indeed was ETs involved here and that they were had a secret base out in Dulce. Yeah. Or 
they didn't uh, dissuade him from his theory, you know, that all of that was going on. So that was like 1980. And uh, there's a lot more uh, to the story, but uh, Benowitz at one point uh, drew up, uh, wrote a uh, report called Project Beta, which Craig Bishop named his book after, revealing this Dulce base and everything was going on. And apparently... <laughs> Benowitz was developing some type of beam weapon at that time to take out, to trap the ETs there at Dulce and destroy them. He really went, this was a pretty brilliant guy. He was a physicist, yeah. but he went way off the uh, deep end and uh, Air Force intelligence <laughs> were partly responsible for that. Right. It, it really affected his mental health. Like the, Yeah, the, he, he, he got locked, well, not locked up, his... Uh, Family uh, admitted him to yeah. a uh, mental health institution for a while. And he died around uh, on oh, the early uh, 90s. But there was definitely some odd stuff uh, going on around him. So that's kind of the first salvo of how the, the legend started with uh, Dulce. Now, there may or may not be uh, something there. You can really get deep in the weeds. A uh, good book to read on this uh, is... Uh, Greg Valdez's book. He was Gabe Valdez's son. He was first hand to a lot of this craziness going on during that period. But so, next thing that happens, <laughs> you want to hear all of this? Sure. <laughs> okay, in uh, 1988, <clears throat> as the story goes, this, uh, uh, there was, uh, well, this actually happened, the story, the Dulce story, the legend that got passed around 88 came from this lady going by the name of Ann West, who met with uh, John Lear. You know who John Lear is, right? Yeah, I do. That's one of the, uh, the aviary fame, yeah. He wasn't an aviary, but he was uh, part of that. Uh, scene, right. information sharing that was going on during that period. His former uh, CIA uh, pilot, his dad was the Learjet inventor, also invented the eight-track player. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But uh, Lear had been a player for a while. Uh, he was one of the first people putting out information about Area 51 because he was, uh, he says he was you know, a contract pilot for the CIA, so he knew things. But so anyway, this lady came to him, and West claimed that uh, she had known this fellow named Thomas Costello, who was, uh, excuse me, Thomas uh, Castello, C A S T E L L O. If you <laughs> look on the web, you'll find Thomas Castello's story. <clears throat> alleged story, but she claimed she knew Castello, and uh, in 1979, uh, Castello was a security guard at Dulce Base, and uh, the you know all the biogenetic experiments were going on. They were abducting uh, humans. They were creating hybrids, all this stuff that later ended up in the X-Files. Yeah. Uh, Castello... <clears throat> if he even existed, claimed it was going on. He was a security guard there, and there there had been an uprising among uh, a few of the ETs and some of the human workers there, including Castello, got involved. And they had a... Uh, <clears throat> and so the 
reptilians running the show called in, you know, those guys, always those guys. Yeah. They called in their cronies, you know, they, they got to deal with the government. The government brought in a Delta force and basically wiped out most everybody except Tom, Tom Castello. Cause Tom Castello was security guard and he had something called a flash gun. It sounds like it was really bitching. This would so be he, like a, this would be like a rail gun. Would it, that shoots like rails. Um, that's that's a reference to an earlier episode, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a I have a description of it somewhere, but it sounded pretty pretty cool. These flash guns. <clears throat> so anyway, he escapes from Dulce. They kidnap his. Uh, it, oh, he escapes with Dulce with videotape images that shows the burbling vats with the little hybrids in them and. You know, everything going on there, plus a bunch of documents, and wow, gets out and uh, goes yeah. into hiding. <clears throat> and he made a copy of all these materials, supposedly. <laughs> I don't believe any of this shit, but th- you know, this, was, this was the official, the mythos that got started. And he made copies, six copies of the materials, sent them to six different UFO researchers, who were unknown to each other, one of whom was Ann West. Okay. Um, so, Ann West, she's revealed herself as Cherry Hinkle. Cherry Hinkle. She's on Facebook. In recent years, she was, it's been revealed who she is. And anyway, as Ann West, she went to um, John Lear in 1988. Uh her story was, uh, <laughs> oh God. Uh, anyway, she she goes with the uh, Tom Costello. He's disappeared and he's considered he's dead. You know, they got to him. So she brought this material to uh, John Lear in '88, and it was released as the Dulce Papers. And if you look <clears throat> online, do a web search for the Dulce Papers, you'll see there's hand drawings of the little uh, aliens in the. Uh, Burbling vats, and it'll show uh, the Dulce base, and there's like seven levels, and the level where all the bad juju was going on is called Nightmare Hall, and you'll hear people still talking about this stuff like it really, really happened. And so this uh, mythology got inserted into the UFO research community, and I'm not going to tell all the secrets I know at right now how this who were the major players that started this besides Cherry Hinkle and John Lear because that's what I've been working on in this piece (laughs) gets into a lot more depth but so that's kind of how the mythology started with that and it got I won't name the individual now but uh, there was there's a whole nexus of people out of Las Vegas and uh, John Lear you know Bill Cooper was part of it Uh, yeah Val Valerian, who was a retired Air Force intelligence guy named John Grace, uh, a guy named Branton, uh, another guy named Tal Levesque. All all these guys started uh, telling the same story, modifying it a little bit, and it got shot out, you know, to the uh, UFO research treadmill, and uh, away we went. Uh, and so. Uh, and so that became the thing. A lot of people, you know, there's been no evidence that there was a uh, Tom Costello. 
seems he was a made up character, kind of a composite character, in my opinion, based on uh, Benowitz a little bit and uh, people who've claimed to be security workers who know about underground bases. All these things got kind of meshed together to create uh, this Dulce based story. Uh, so that that was kind of the initial thing, and the '95 Phil Schneider shows up telling the same story of uh, he's basically playing the role of Tom Castello now. He's telling Tom Castello's story that he'd been in this firefight at uh, Dulce Base, you know, and he got wounded, and now he's a whistleblower's come out to uh, reveal his story. Yeah. And he had he had this very like I've seen I've seen clips of him on YouTube or you know whatever and he he he's he 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 starts talking about you know this real like ultra American you know I believe in the Constitution and mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff and then and then he'll start talking about fighting aliens in this in this base and it's just yeah. like what in the world is going on here. And well, a lot, of, a lot of things morphed into the Patriot movement. I mean, yeah, Bill, Bill Cooper, yeah. He was totally into all of this, uh, you know, during that period. He was part of that uh, scene with John Lear and those guys, and he started repeating some of these same stories. And at uh, one point, he kind of stepped away from, you know, he started saying that uh, all the UFO alien abduction stuff was basically disinformation you know and he got deeper into the uh patriot movement at that point but uh and so uh let's see anyway yeah it's <laughs> it's a complicated uh it's a story story but it it uh <clears throat> the same time that was happening excuse me just a second getting over cold here all of this stuff kind of happened at the same time around uh, 1988 is when the uh, Area 51 revelations came out. Yeah. And it seemed like uh, whoever was cooking up a lot of this stuff, and you know, part of it might have been government disinformation and ufologist uh, conspiracy theorists run, run with it. But you know, a lot of the same stories were coming out about uh, – Area 51, that there was an underground base there, that there'd been a uh, secret pact between the U.S. government and the aliens, and like the uh, reptilian aliens had kind of gone rogue and they'd taken over the base. And you had the same story coming out of Area 51, and uh, a lot of this. I learned about a lot of this stuff on the Billy Goodman happening, which was this radio show out of Las Vegas. Back then, he latched on to a lot of this stuff, as, as well as George Knapp, you know who he was. Right. And uh, it was kind of the same story. There was this security worker that came on the uh, Billy Goodman happen- happening, and he called himself Yellow Fruit. I don't know <laughs> what that referred to, but he was <laughs> <clears throat> sharing similar revelations. So, it, you know, it's like <laughs> some of the same stories are the same uh, – uh, boilerplate they were using about underground bases and security workers there, or in the case of Bob Lazar, he discovered what was uh, going on and that, that we, we were uh, back engineering the uh, crafts that, part of this exchange program with the aliens and on and on and on. Have you ever heard the Area 51 Art Bell phone call? 
<laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. Uh, do you think that they, that was a total setup? Yeah. Because I used to just, I used to listen to it and be like, there's no way. There's no way. This has got to be real. <laughs> Back in my nah. younger, more naive days. <laughs> it's totally BS. Before I understood disinformation and, and it, it, one thing about <laughs> well, the disinformation. Oh, I, th- I think it was just a joke. Do you think it was just a joke? You can uh, hear Art saying, sir, you better go back now. You know, and he's probably <laughs> muting his mic, laughing his ass off about this. You know. <laughs> yeah. I heard the, uh, Phil Hendry did a couple of crank phone calls to Art Bell, and that might have been one of them. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> it, you, you know, about the disinformation stuff, I mean, that's, that's interesting all in of itself because you talk about Richard Doty. And there's a scene in that in that documentary where he she, he talks to um, well Linda Moulton Howe is talking about how oh, Richard she, Doty she got, showed she her got all this su- stuff. She got, she got sucked into it too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we had uh, Peter Robbins on our show, and we talked to him about his book Left at East Gate about the Rendlesham Forest and about Larry Warren and, and supposedly that. But well, one of the things that's interesting about that is. They pulled that same kind of stuff on Larry Warren and some of those other guys, and they probably also dosed him up with some kind of hallucinogen too, to mm-hmm. make them yeah. think that there were actual aliens on the base, or that there were aliens underneath the base. And there were some similar, very similar tactics that were used by the Air Force. Well, Doty was in the Air Force, and there was very similar tactics in that case that was used in all this Paul Benowitz case as well. So it seems I like th- this is across the board. I think it was all connected, and yeah. uh, Doty might have been even related to that uh, Rendlesham thing as well. Interesting. Because there was another uh, incident called, you know, about the Cash Landrum incident? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that happened just a couple days before or after uh, the Rendlesham incident. Yeah, I think it was after Rendlesham, I think. And... Uh, <laughs> In 19, you know, about uh, my head starting to hurt talking about all this stuff because I've been <laughs> writing about it. You know how convoluted this all gets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm like, uh, been into it pretty deeply. But the, have you heard of <clears throat> Doc? It was a live broadcast called UFO Cover Up Live from 1988. It, it, it rings a bell, but I'm not, I don't, I'm, well, I don't, I'm not familiar with the story, I don't think. Mike Farrell was the host of this thing, you know, Mike Farrell of MASH. Yeah, okay. And <laughs> they they had, uh, on this show, uh, you had Bill Moore and uh, Stanton Friedman coming in talking about, you know, their sources they had for MJ-12 and uh, the Roswell crash, which was all tied into this Doty stuff. Right. And they bring on a couple members of the aviation, Aviary, I don't know why I'm having problems saying that, the Aviary, during the course of this show, and they're in shadows, you know, and their voices are uh, modified, and one of them is Falcon, and uh, Richard, it was actually Richard Doty on the show. Right, yeah. As as Falcon, now he later said he wasn't the real Falcon, he was (laughs) protecting the identity of the real Falcon, whatever sense that makes, but they brought... On the uh, two ladies, uh, Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum, that told their uh, story, 
you know, about, uh, yeah, this huge crafted, uh, diamond shaped craft had shown up and was really hot. And it's like, they got ex- exposed to radiation and, uh, then 23 helicopters showed up and <laughs> escorted the thing away. <clears throat> and then they switched to, uh, Falcon who comes on, you know, it was Doty behind the scenes claiming that, yeah, it was a UFO craft that they were test piloting and, uh, <laughs> yeah. they, they lost control of it momentarily and whatever. So anyway, it was more muddling what was going on here with these ladies. Right. And you look, you look at the ladies and they're nodding their heads. Yeah. Thank God somebody's coming up with the claiming, you know, that, uh, that it was the uh, government and they, Later, uh, but, you know, once again, it was just Doty muddling things up more. The the ladies filed a lawsuit, you know, uh, Betty Cash contracted, uh, was diagnosed with cancer not shortly after, you know, their sighting. And so, you know, they felt they'd been screwed over by some secret government program. And so they got that lawyer, Peter Gersten, who's done other UFO cases and stuff. <laughs> and... Uh, Eventually, uh, got dismissed at the circuit court level, where it was, you know, basically, <laughs> they they couldn't prove that the government had any of these diamond-shaped, uh, uh, strange aircraft that the ladies saw. They had no way of uh, proving it, and government experts came on, of course, denying it. Yeah. But so anyway, it was interesting that once again, uh, Doty had. Uh, some relationship to that, you know, whether he was part of that operation. <clears throat> as far as the diamond-shaped craft, who knows? But then, you know, it's also curious that it happened uh, so soon after or before the whole Eastgate thing. Because I was thinking before I'd heard that uh, that they'd happened so close together, you know, I'd been thinking for a while that, yeah, that sounded, that Eastgate or Rendlesham incident sounds a lot <laughs> like all this other uh, craziness that was going on with Benowitz, and it all seemed to happen during the same time period in 1980. Yeah, that's true. I I, I want to turn to, b- before we kind of let you go, I want to turn to a, a more lighthearted subject, and that would be, uh, you wrote, Ter- terrorism? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to talk about uh, Eyes Wide no, Shut. Let, okay, sure. Um, yeah, I just I, I just watched it not too long ago. Actually, yesterday, in fact, for the second time. First time I watched it, I was probably around about 23 years old, and I just I hated it. I, I couldn't stand it. I thought it was a terrible movie. But uh, since then, I've done a lot of reading, one of which is an article that you wrote. And uh, about this about this particular movie, and I can tell you, I got a lot more out of it. What's kind of like your general thoughts on that? And do you think that because a lot of people think you know, like Kubrick, like four days after he completed the movie, he he died. And there's a lot of people that you know, that think that uh, he was killed because, of course, the famous scene in the movie is the big like Illuminati sex orgy in the middle of it, you know. Mm-hmm. But you, so, you think there's some things to do with mind control as well in that film? Well, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, what year was that uh, released? It came out in 99. Okay, so this is going back a few years. and uh, Bear in mind, I haven't watched it since, <laughs> since 1999 when I wrote this article. Yeah. 
And uh, so, uh, yeah, during that uh, period, I was pretty heavily into a lot of the mind control research and the so-called monarch uh, sex slave programming. So within the film, there seemed to be an, a lot of allusions to uh, the mon monarch uh, programming, you know, because they said they used like imagery from uh, – the Wizard of Oz, for instance, you know, I found a lot of that in the movie. And this, the, j there was just a lot of things. I'd have to go through this article again that jumped out on me. That uh, yeah, there was uh, one thing that uh, I, I read a little bit of it yesterday after I watched the movie, mm -hmm. and because uh, I have the the Beast of Adam Go Rightly, and I, it, you know, he, Tom Cruise is talking to these two models, and it looks like they're gonna take him upstairs to go have some fun. And he asked him, where are we going? And one of the models says, we're going to the end or like we're going over the rainbow. And then he goes to this later on, he goes to this costume shop to go to mm -hmm. this costume for this top secret party. And it, and it's called over the rainbow or something like that. Right. Right. I'm looking at the article here under the rainbow. Yeah. yeah. It seemed like he was going into this, secret mind control world by uh i don't know that that seemed like one of the initiations or what led him to led him to that uh crazy scene there where uh <laughs> it went down at that mansion with all the uh, illuminati uh sexiness going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah and one thing i noticed that there's a lot of play with color in that movie a kubrick I mean, you could like you could do hours and hours of analysis on stuff on Kubrick and like stuff that he put mm -hmm. in movies, but like you know, there's so much going on. Like every time that there's a woman, pretty much on the screen, like Nicole Kidman, other women, they're always in blue. They're always they're always mm. standing next to this blue background, and I'm just sitting there thinking, what is going on? What is he trying to say here? <laughs> you know. What is being said? And when he gets to the mansion, the mansion itself is just engulfed in blue. Mm. And like the uh, the woman that saves, that's quote unquote saves him from being dumbed whatever by the Illuminati, she's also bathed in blue. And it's just mm -hmm. like, it, it, and there's there's it's like the rainbow colors are all over the place in it too. Well, let's do a Google search for mind control in blue and see what uh, comes up. You know, maybe he was, uh, you know, getting into a lot of that literature during that yeah. period, and that was his uh, inspiration, or maybe he knew things. I don't know. There was, you know, you talk about different people analyzing uh, Kubrick's work, and uh, you'll get a, a lot of different uh, theories or, you know, interpretations of stuff. Right. There's that movie on sure you're probably aware of it was what's it called room 237 room 237 yeah yeah and it's like uh, there's uh <laughs> three or four different points of views of what uh you know what uh, Kubrick was trying to say and they point out subliminal messages and each had a little different theory and all of them made a lot of sense you know it's like yeah <laughs> but uh is a really uh you know what was he really thinking? We don't we don't really know for sure. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of weird synchronicities and stuff around uh, his films. Excuse me one second here. Well, 
the I thing that I was going to bring up too was that this the 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 guy that playing the piano and he's later playing the piano at the party. This is someone that Tom Cruise's character went to medical school with. Yeah, and he goes and he's the one that basically he finds out about the party from, and you know his last name was Nightingale. Oh, and there I you go. Know yeah. There's some things within the mind control uh, uh, literature, MK Ultra, that has to do with the words Nightingale. There's also the Bluebird, mm-hmm. which there that could be your blue thing there, possibly. Yeah, you know, and then there's this whole idea in the movie that. Nicole Kidman, his wife, like she tells him about this dream that she's having. And, you know, the implication is either that Tom Cruise is just hallucinating everything that he witnessed or she was actually at the party herself. It's just there's so many layers there. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to watch it again. Like I said, it's been a few years now. Yeah, I don't think I, I saw it when it originally came out in 1999. Right. I got to tell you, I did get a lot more out of it this time. And uh, there was a director's cut, too, that I was uh, intrigued by, but uh, that's probably not what's on those cheapskate Netflix uh, streaming. <laughs> so. Probably not. <laughs> Do you think that there was any foul play with Kubrick? Do you think that he was he might have revealed too much? Did he fake the moon landing? <laughs> <laughs> All of that is just fascinating. I don't know, but yeah. uh, uh, if you interviewed Jay Widener, Mm-mm. no, but well, I, he, I've, uh, that's that's someone that's on the list for sure to get on. I mean, his his uh, theories are uh, pretty damn uh, compelling as well. You know uh, that uh, you can find some YouTube stuff of the, the research he's done. He, sh- he sh- you know. Uh, at least to me, is pretty convincing evidence that uh, uh, Kubrick, yeah, might have been involved in uh, <laughs> uh, faking the uh, moon landing, and that uh, he was basically, uh, you know, he made a deal. He got uh, green lighted on a lot of his projects to, because of that, and got you know access to things that other people didn't get uh, access to, you know. Yeah, and there's supposedly there's a lot of people that think in The Shining that he's actually revealing that. In the it, 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 he's revealing that he actually faked it in the moon in, in The Shining <laughs> in certain yeah. scenes. Yeah, there's well, a lot of craziness. He changed so many, but it's like it, it, he he changed so much of Stephen King's original book that King just hated it. He yeah. hated what he did to it. But, and you can almost see that, that Kubrick did all that on purpose so he could just turn it into his own and then just put all these weird things in it. Right. And you got to understand that as a writer, that's, uh, you know, when you uh, sell your work to uh, somebody, even if it's a great director like that, they have their own uh, yeah. vision. It's like uh, Ken Kesey hated uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Which I thought was a damn good movie from a damn good book, but it was, wasn't uh, Kesey's vision, so there you go. And, and to add to that, just about Kubrick, too, I mean, A Clockwork Orange, I mean, if that movie's not about mind control, I don't know what is. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's about as blatant as it gets. Yeah, really. All his movies are pretty heavy, you know, from Doctor Strangelove, and uh, yeah. there's there's a synchronicity there that uh, the day uh, 
Dr. Strange Love was uh, slated to premiere was the uh, same day the JFK assassination went down. Really? So, so they had to postpone screening it. Yeah, I know with, the, and this isn't Kubrick, but I know with the Manchurian Candidate, that movie, you think, came out the year before uh, Kennedy was assassinated, and it just wasn't shown until, I think, in the 70s. Well, all. Frank Sinatra ended up uh, owning the rights to it. Yeah. And uh, that when, his, you know, JFK was a friend of his, so after the assassination, he just pulled it, you know. <laughs> he must have felt that it wasn't appropriate, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, there's another brilliant uh, movie as well that was ahead of its time. Right. It, you know, there's so much more that we could talk about, and we could spend, like, an entire, like, day doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to come out to California and hang out with you. Or, oh, certainly. Or you come, here to, you come here to Nashville and take you to some I, esoteric spots. <laughs> yeah, I was actually there a couple of years ago. Yeah, you should, you should come out sometime. Uh uh, Guy Malone's back in, in Roswell, so he's, okay, he's a little closer yeah. to you now. But uh, <laughs> he, he was here for a good while. But, yeah. Uh, we're going to – actually, uh, before we close out, tell everybody where they can get your books and where they can contact you. Uh, get the books on Amazon. Just punch in Adam Go Rightly or the website, adamgorightly.com. Or, uh, yeah, I got a – few different websites there this the historia discordia website then my blog adam whatever it's called go rightly at wordpress.com but and so yeah if they want to get a hold of me they can contact me through uh the adam go rightly.com website i'm also uh back on facebook after <laughs> getting locked out of my account and having to start another one so <laughs> I'm I'm pretty easy to find. That's what happened, huh? Do you st- do you still have the kooky Christian album covers and the Bongo Girl of the Week? Oh yeah, that's on the <laughs> that's on the blog there. Yeah, I think the uh, with the Facebook thing, uh, I think s- since they changed their uh, policy, it's not as easy for somebody to just complain about uh, somebody. Yeah, and I think that's what happens to me. I got a few whatever, you know how. People don't like you for some reason, and it becomes a passion with them to screw with you, trolls. And I assume somebody complained saying I wasn't the real me. And so, you know, uh, and that's happened to a lot of people, and there's not really much you can do about it once it happens because as far as uh, Facebook support, there really is no supporter. There are several levels of uh, bots, you know, when you try to contact them. Yeah. I mean, they, they've designed that so they can buffer themselves from having to really deal with uh, the, the people who use Facebook. But and there's been this controversy here with, for a couple of years with uh, drag queens that were uh, losing their accounts because they were people were complaining they were fake people. The people who were complaining were just complaining because they didn't like drag queens. And so it, uh, if you look on the web, you can see it became a big issue with the drag queen community, you know, like in uh, California and elsewhere, yeah. c- complaining about this whole situation with Facebook, and it's happened with a lot of people. Apparently, starting in December now, they've changed their policy a little bit uh, 
where if somebody's going to complain about you or whatever, they can't do it anonymously, which was which was what was going on before. You can Maybe. you know say say somebody uh, posted some bad content or whatever, or is a fake person, but you didn't have to identify yourself. So I think that's changed supposedly. A new policy that was supposed yeah, to happen. I think in, so. Uh, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's the that's the long story there. But I'm, yeah, back on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. Maybe it's the aviary or the reptilians that we're uh, complaining. <laughs> uh, Adam, thank you so much for being on, uh, for coming, for helping us out with the hundredth episode, and stay on the line for us. And guys, we will be back with another surprise guest on the Conspiranormal 100th episode. All right, guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. This is, as we said before, is the Skype portion of the 100th episode extravaganza. And we have on the line Mr. Walter Bosley. And Walter, uh, you are kind of still in the two uh, guests uh, on Conspiranormal Club. You were on episode 74 that was where we talked about your all three of your Empire of the Will books and uh-huh. episode 87, which that was uh, both uh, Secret Missions 1 and 2. And we, uh-huh. we talked to you about those. But I, I find your material so interesting, and I'm going to have you back on. We've already got you scheduled on to come back in February. So I wanted to bring you on for the for this kind of special episode here. So how, how are things uh, going over there in San Bernardino right now? Oh, this you know, um, other than whatever the uh, the uh, FBI and the other cops might be, you know, investigating for follow up, things are uh, business as usual here, really. Other than I think you got some people who are a lot more uh, aware and enlightened as to um, the threats outside of this this valley, which often until now went, um, you know, I wouldn't say ignored, but insulated. Right. Hey, hey, can I ask Walter? Walter, did you get to walk through the house with all those other people when they opened up that bedroom? <laughs> yeah. No, no. I have having done the work. I know that it's just best and more helpful to not be another uh, uh, another body over there, you know, getting in the way. They said so, there was you know, there was some just strangers walking through with drink cups and children walking through. So I think yeah, everybody was, was welcome. <laughs> I heard that, and I was like, oh, geez, come on. However, um, I do think that's probably part of the investigative strategy. You know, it's kind of like, it, and I'm not giving away any big secrets because, you know, you've seen it in movies where, you know, about firemen where there's the uh, the arson investigator. Right. Who, you know, the video. And, and when, you, when you're a, an investigator, you're trained, you're a federal agent, cop or whatever, detective. You're trained to um, actually, in many cases these days, I think, take video of all the people standing around watching. And I mean, we were trained to take photographs of the crowd if there were any looky-loos. Because, you know, that age-old thing about the perpetrator returns to the scene of the crime. So Mm -hmm. I think maybe they were looking to see um, who might have shown up. Yeah. uh, Interesting. Yeah. What was kind of like your initial reaction? Because to kind of of preface this, if no one's listened to the show on The Empire of the Will, Mm -hmm. you know, you had... uh, you had been looking at this case from 1915 that you believed was uh, was revolved revolved around some like ritualistic human sacrifice. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so you looked, I, you looked at that case and you had constantly had been saying that look for something to happen in your area in this year, 2015. And sure yeah. enough, something really major does happen there. Yeah, and I didn't expect it to be something so public. If, if you right. recall, in Empire of the Wheel 1, um, I can't remember which chapter it is. It's in one of the last chapters where Rick and I, you know, we put it out there that, you know, somebody or, or the circumstances and such, whatever, somebody might make something happen or we might see the emergence of, and this is what I thought it was, you know, an emergence of a serial killer. Yeah. Um, uh, honestly, that that was the, the the road that my mind was going down. The you know we we would see the emergence of a serial killer, which we might not know was going on until well into 2016. You know, farther down the road, once it would be discovered, and you know, because that takes time. I did not, you know, dummy me, uh, particularly dummy me when you think of uh, Empire of the Wheel three, the nameless ones, in which I put out a list of events that were very public, which I identify as um, uh, possibly uh, acts of um, black magic on the psyche of the public, you know, uh, I, I should have, I should have figured looking back on it, I should have figured, well, yeah, it might be something very public, but, you know, um, that hindsight is, you know, 2020, but uh, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting something like this, and uh, it, it, it kind of, it took me by surprise, but in that way, not so much. You know what I mean? As soon as I heard the reports right. that there was something going on, I um, and I heard where it was. Of course, the first thing I do is pull out my maps, and the map that I pulled out was one that I've had since 2008. And uh, sure enough, you know, there it was, right uh, right adjacent to an intersection of the the Tuluric current ley line, so to speak. Um, you know, and then from there, the, the synchronicities just began to pile up. Well, let's talk about some of the synchronicities. I know the one big one that you were looking at was the number 14 as mm -hmm. being very significant. Well, yeah, significant within this event and within the context of Empire of the Wheel, because basically here's what they are. The, 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 the four biggies with this event are the date Okay, the second of December, nineteen fifteen, is when a a girl named Orta Hedges, a fourteen year old girl in Redlands, dies from eating a poisoned orange. That orange was poisoned with an unknown toxin, never was specifically identified. Um, and then here we have on the one hundredth anniversary to the day of that girl's death, we have fourteen victims of a terrorist attack. So. Wow, you know, um, on on the 100th anniversary to the day of the 14-year-old girl's death, we have 14 victims of a terrorist attack on that day. So there's two biggies, the date and the number 14. Then, of course, we had the physical location. Now, we got a double whammy there because we have it adjacent to the intersection of these two Tuluric current ley lines like I talk about and write about but also the nearest main intersection of streets right there is Waterman Avenue and Orange Show Road. Now, I had discussed that one with, um, I was in the middle of discussing that one the other day with Seshari, um, associate of mine who provides me with these maps and such. And um, a person who had read the book 
had brought it up to me. It sent me an email or a message saying, hey, did you notice the Waterman Avenue Orange Show Road? You know, I pointed out, hey, very good. You know, you're reading the material because that's a synchronicity in itself. You see, we had another victim, a man named Isidore Jasso, who in October of 2015 drowned in Baldwin Lake. Okay? So that's a man who dies in water. October of 1915, right? What, yeah, 1915. Okay. Man who dies in the water, or Waterman, there's Waterman Avenue. Or to Hedges, the girl in 1915, on the 2nd of December, dies from eating a poison orange. There you have the orange connection, Orange Show Road. So at the intersection of Waterman and Orange Show Road, you're actually looking at the intersection of these two deaths, the man who died in the water and the girl who died from an orange. And there, 100 years later, um, to the day of her death, you have this terrorist attack. And then um, I would say that the, uh, the, the real biggie is a couple of days after this happened, the FBI revealed that she had the female terrorist now here in 2015 had gone online and dedicated their activity, their act, their cells, whatever you know they envision themselves doing, to yes. the terrorist group ISIS. Now here's the interesting thing: I argue that in, two, in 1915, this 14-year-old girl and the six other victims were all murdered or sacrificed in dedication to the goddess Hecate. Hecate is syncretic, okay, to the Egyptian goddess Isis. So therefore, Hecate is Isis, and the 14-year-old girl's murder was done in dedication to Hecate slash Isis. And 100 years later, this terrorist attack is carried out in dedication to Isis, the terrorist group, but there we have the synchronicity, ISIS, ISIS, you know, ISIS, Hecate. And, and so, I, I want to be clear with this because uh, you're not saying that this is some shadowy group necessarily that is setting this up and that they're really, it's a false flag and they're really behind this. The They really pulled it off and they blamed these guys. What, what, what oh, you no, would no, more no. likely say is that there's more like a spiritual influence or these things are just uh, it's designed to happen. It's, it's the weird fabric uh, that, well, you know, there's three possibilities I put out there. Um, here's the thing. Regardless of what the possibilities are, these two idiots and whoever else was helping them, these two idiots, these morons, were the ones who did this attack. This was not a false flag. Now, do I suspect that there's little elements we're not being told, that there may be some things out there people saw that haven't been explained yet? Sure. And that's standard in some investigations. You know, they might be holding some stuff back because they do need to, you know, bring in some more people or something. Um, but, no, I, I do not, and I did not at any part of this think this was any kind of false flag. I knew that people jumped on that one immediately. No, right. no, no. This is what it was. However, the weirdness connected to it, um, you know, my three possibilities I put out there is, number one, that in just the weird fabric of space, time, whatever, reality, the ether, um, th these kinds of patterns, you know, uh, show up for better or worse. Um, or the act of magic, this is getting a little esoteric now, the act of magic 100 years ago injected... Um, certain data into the time-space fabric so that then these injections continue 
in within context of the original magic act. In other words, it's the gift that keeps on giving in a very dark way. Right. Okay. The third possibility is that, and this is the one that's far out there. The third possibility is that somebody associated with the group a hundred years ago, which I we have no reason to think went away and disappeared. You know, their descendants. You know, this this whole tradition of whatever it is, this dark tradition, might have been passed on. We have no reason to think it didn't, and I imply it as much with the Zodiac Killer chapter in the first book. Um, it could be that somebody associated with that group had some connection to these terrorist idiots and might have been an influence on, hey, do it on this day. Hey, you know, make sure you kill X number of people or, or something. I'm just throwing that out there. Right. Um, that's a possibility that has to be considered. But that aside... No, these idiots did do the killings. It was a terrorist-motivated attack. It was not a false flag. A manipulation of individuals is a different thing from those things. So that's all the uh, the strange mix that's uh, you know out there. Strange, strangely enough, you know, when we I had you on the first time and we talked about Empire of the Will and we talked about Hecate. I, I had told you that, you know, Hecate, it's not the first time that Hecate had actually come up on this show. And Dr. Future here that is with me, he has actually done some research on that himself. Mm-hmm. So uh, you guys should correspond on some of that. It would be sure. interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> you want to add to that, Dr. Future? No, uh, well, I mean, I'm not an expert on any of that. What what precipitated with me was from a totally different direction. I right. was looking at some stuff out of, of all things, Bible prophecy. In uh, Revelation chapter 8, when it talks about um, wormwood being called from the sky. And uh, I can't go into all of it here, but there's a, a direct and In fact, it even involves a revival of things like absinthe today. And uh, the spiritual portals open from consumption uh, that it's a wormwood-based product uh, that was used long ago for, uh, I guess, uh, evocation or invocation, and its its names is uh, uh, Artemis. Uh, see, Absinthium Artemis, and then uh, it ties directly to Artemis or Isis or Hecate. And uh, right. there are several pictures if you look in that passage in Revelation eight where it talks about. Uh, it's it's said that uh, it's a star, and it's elsewhere described in Revelation as being an angel, a star, and it has keys. And that's what Hecate was, was a liminal goddess with the keys yes. to the spirit world. And, and also being associated with like a torch or a flame. And that's how it's described in, in Revelation, being thrown down. Yeah, two torches. Yeah. Two torches from the Greek tradition, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, that, and, and through various other information that's in there. And in fact, it talks about the waters, the word hydros there is synonymous with the waters that's described by the angel in Revelation as being peoples and nations. Uh, and it says that they're made bitter uh, because of their contact. Uh, and I, to me, I, I now see this more as a description of an evocation of Hecate by followers on the ground. That actually uh, Wormwood is brought forth because she's summoned. And, and it says as a byproduct, a lot of the nation, a, a lot of people will lose their life because of this. And I think that would be anything to actually invoke Hecate would be through a mass sacrifice of people. And it would also facilitate 
spiritually the ability for her to open up the keys to the abyss, which happens to, to free her brother, Apollyon or Apollo, uh, in the first few verses of Revelation 9. So I, I think, to me, I see possibilities of this kind of worship of her, whether said directly by that name or not, as days get to the final days of Earth, I could see that really increasing and people wanting to see these kind of events occur. Of course, what comes out of the abyss, they may not like when it happens, <laughs> but that they could see this as something they would want to actually initiate on their own watch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, uh, all, all that all that makes a sense to me, you know, having, as you know, when you when you look into this whole Hecate thing, um, you see all these things. Uh, what I came away with in my um, research, you know, over the course of, I think it was like seven or eight years, um, is in, in the experience that I had on that research, I came away with a sense of there's Hecate, whoever, whatever she is, um, and then there's uh, the spin that uh, various people put on her for their own purposes, um, and and I use a pronoun just because you know the symbol of Hecate is the goddess, mm-hmm. but it's kind of it's kind of like electricity. You can use electricity for very positive things, and we do in our society. But electricity can also be you know a very negative thing because it's very dangerous. And I came away with a, a view of Hecate as she just is, and depending upon the application of an evocation of her power, you get bad or good, dark or light, depending. And it just so happens that because of certain dramatic aspects of her nature, um, I think more people have attributed or, or tried to tap into that dark energy of it. But I think I have found evidence of an attempt to tap into the light side energy with um, uh, her presence in civic-minded uh, pursuits um, in this area. So it's it, it's it's really interesting. Um, I I totally see what you're talking about, and yeah, that is there. That's the thing. All that dark stuff is there. So it's just something that um, to be careful with. Mm-hmm. And I think there's people out there who have not been careful with it. Mm. And um, yeah, I'm not it, familiar it, it with the mayhem. yeah the positive side of it. I just had not come across it in my limited research because it seemed to me in the ancient world she was almost worshipped more out of fear. Yeah. And that's why they yeah. would leave offerings to her where like three roads met and they were concerned about her or her minions coming and taking their babies and things right. like that. Yeah, so. the association with Lilith and yeah. and, and such. And well, yeah, and I found all that too. And it, it was really, I, I think you can tell um, when I went into the research on the first book, she was very much the dark figure, the dark, scary, you know, um, uh, uh, almost evil figure, and then uh, by the time I'd finished the years of research and got to the third book, I had come to this place where it's like, okay, she kind of just is, and <laughs> she's out there, and or she or whatever it is is out there. It it is, and it's something to not play with, um, to certainly not communicate directly with so to speak. You know, one interesting yeah. thing about her, by the way, is that mm-hmm. if I, yeah, I may have my mythology confused, but it seems like she sort of played a neutral role in the battle of the gods and the titans, and she yeah. was allowed to maintain her position in the heavens, 
Be- yeah, see, no, you have not got your mythology mixed up at all. All those things you, you said are accurate. They're out there. Yeah. But there's even, you know, there, there's even more in the other side. And I think maybe the reason we don't see the other side, the lighter side, is because there is the admonition of Isis, the goddess Isis, and that's, of course, Isis Hecate. And that admonition is this. When she lifts her veil, because she is the veiled goddess in her Isis aspect, when she lifts her veil to show you her true nature, the truth about her, you are to tell no one. That is a that's like a gift to you. That mm. you're, you're and you're not supposed to say anything about that. Well, it might be that you know when she lifts her veil, so to speak, and those who have seen that realize, oh, I, okay, there is like you said a neutral aspect, which you know neutral mm. is both light and dark, good and bad. You know those who keep their mouth shut are probably keeping their mouth shut more about the lighter side because what the darker side is so much more useful right in our world because people are superstitious and fearful and it's easier to control people with darkness and scary stuff right um so i think maybe that's why uh, some very dark things have been done in her name if we were to personify her it might be like this she's sitting up there you know on Mount Olympus saying, hey, you know, all this dark crap these people have done in my name, I, I don't advocate this. This is all them. It's on them. And in the end, they'll pay for it through karma or whatever. <laughs> it, it, you know, I imagine a possible scene like that. You know, it, it, it could be. But, you know, like I said, she's someone that it is out there and you kind of respect its power and you just go about your business. Right. <laughs> it's not well, something to play with. Walter, we're, we're, we're running out of time here. We're going to get okay. the next people on. But uh, uh, real quick, just kind of give mm-hmm. us a little bit, kind of like a little teaser on the next book that uh, should be coming out actually this month, right? Yeah, I'm hoping to get it out sometime between Christmas Day and, and New Year's Day. Um, and I'm, I'm getting close. Basically, it's uh, Origins, the... 19th century emergence of the 20th century breakaway civilizations, in which I present um, uh, basically just that, how the whole airship mystery and the breakaway civilization um, is issue of the 20th century did not begin in the post-World War II era, that it actually has its roots going back uh, before the 1850s. And that's what the book is about, is presenting um, my argument and evidence for that. And uh, I look forward to uh, talking about that with you. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're looking forward to. It. We got you scheduled for February on that. And is I, it I February just, or January? Uh, February, February, oh, February eighth. Okay. Um, just, Alrighty. just one thing to point out that I found interesting that I found out this week was that Eagles of Death Metal, the band that was on the stage at the oh, in, uh, Paris. in Paris yeah, when the from- major attack occurred, they have a song called "San Bernardino Sunburn." That is about San Bernardino, yeah. or at least mentions it in the title. So I found yeah, that a very that interesting. interesting coincidence, at least. So yeah, yeah, and there they were in Paris during that attack, and they survived it. Right, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Bosley, and well, thanks for having me on, guys. I enjoy being on and talking with you. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you have it. Stay on the line with us, just real quick. We'll be, we'll sure. be, uh, we're going to close this segment out. We'll be back with another thank guest. All right, guys, we are back yet again with a, uh, another guest for the Conspiranormal 100th episode, Skype Call Edition. And on the line, I have one of uh, my favorite guests that we've had on the show, and that is uh, Mr. Nick Redfern. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, Nick. 
Adam, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. Thanks for coming back on. Yeah, uh, sure. we, uh, we're we going to have another guest joining us here at 4.30 that I'm sure you'd uh, be excited to speak to. And But uh, I kind of wanted to go over real quick the episodes that you've been that I've had you on. And that is uh, the first episode was episode 29 back in May of 2013. And that was where we talked about the uh, fi- uh, your book, Final Events, that uh, had you also did an interview with my good friend, Dr. Future, here on. Uh, episode 56, which was August of 2014, and that was about Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. And just this year in June, episode 83, we talked about your book, Secret History. So you have been on the show a grand total of three times. <laughs> And now a fourth, I guess, if you if you, if you count this. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I kind of wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about your trip to Brazil. Uh, I saw that you just went there not too long ago, and yeah, I've of course have some connections to Brazil myself, and I've been there a couple of times, and I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts. So, well, first of all, what was it that you did, and and what did you think of of the of Brazil? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a cool event. I actually just got back on Tuesday, so I've only been back like four days, five days. And um, it was the uh, UFO forum that's put on by AJ Javad. And um, I'd never been to Brazil before, you know, so it was sort of cool to, you know, I enjoy traveling around. So for me, it was cool to go and see Brazil for the first time and, and South America for the first time. And um, it's sort of a huge event that runs Friday through Sunday, and there's about 20 or so speakers, you know, talking on all different aspects. And um, the reason why I was speaking there was because back in 2011, I did a book called um, The The Real Men in Black. And the company that published it, New Page, they did a deal with AJ to publish a Brazilian edition of the book. So I was out there essentially just promoting the book and doing a lecture on the history of the men in black and the different theories for who they were. But um, it's a really well-attended conference, you know, and it's about an audience of about 500, something like that each day. And, um, you know, it's all sort of run really good. And um, what sort of really impressed me was the fact that there's four of us there who were English speakers. And, of course, you know, it's not their their native language. So what they do, um, all of the audience, all 500, are given a set of free headphones. And the what they have, they have this guy named Carlos, who's a really good translator. So when I'm speaking on stage, he's literally only about a second behind me oh, wow. translating into Portuguese. And everybody can sort of see you on stage and see the images, but they're hearing the translation coming through pretty much immediately through the headphones. So it's sort of really well-run conference and um, on top of that you know I sort of got a lot of insight into the nature of the UFO phenomenon in Brazil where a lot of close encounter uh, cases were discussed abductions contactee cases and also quite a lot of violent and hostile um, reports as well you know um, which we seem to get from South America for some reason more than pretty much anywhere else. So it was sort of a good overall experience. And, you know, there's plenty of hot Brazilian girls running around as well. So that, <laughs> sort of that 
know. Right. Two, two cases I can think of from Brazil specifically was uh, the one in Belém that was, I think, in the late 70s where yeah. people actually had like radiation burns from yeah. whatever they encountered. And then the other one was the one that Roger Lear wrote about. What, what was that place called, Mike? Do you Virginia or something yeah, like Virginia. that. Yeah, Virginia. Yeah, Minas Gerais. Yeah. yeah. He but, talked about that at one of the crash retrieval conferences we were yeah. at. Had a great yeah. talk on it. I don't know why they get so many, you know, sort of confrontational ones down there, but but they do. But, uh, hmm. you know, for me, the, the cool thing was to sort of hear some of the, like I said, you know, the, the cases that probably you don't hear too much outside of Brazil. Um, you know, they've got a huge uh, following in Brazil, and AJ's got his own sort of glossy newsstand magazine, which has been going a long time now. But I think... Well, I know I should say that from what I heard at the conference, certainly a lot of the really cool stories of contact cases, etc., I just never heard of them before. And I think, you know, that sort of demonstrates that, yeah, we're on one hand, you know, we're doing well in terms of sharing data. But on the other hand, there's still a lot more going on in, you know, this country or that country that other people just don't hear about, despite even the Internet. Did, did you get to meet Coffin Joe while you were there? Coffin Joe. Coffin Joe. He, yeah, he he's, he is like the national figure of Brazil. He's like the combination Freddy Krueger and Michael Meyer. And he stars in their movies like At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul or Midnight I'll Possess Your Corpse. And he has created a whole mythology that's unique to Brazil around what, what he's created. And he has a show that has been on for decades. It's almost like an Art Bell kind of show. Oh, talking yeah. about the darker side of these kind of things. And, yeah, he is a legend in Brazil. You have to look up Coffin Joe. I'll do that. Was, was this the first book that was uh, that was published, of your first book of yours that was published in Brazil? Uh, yeah, it was. A lot of my books have been published in various other countries, but, yeah, that was the first one in Brazil. Oh, wow. One of the things I wanted to ask you about since I have you here is, you know, we, we talked recently to uh, – Dr. David Jacobs, when he had his, uh, his new book out, Walking Among Us. And you had written a, an article, I believe it was for a mysterious universe, which good yeah. friend of ours sitting right across from me also writes for. And we, um, <clears throat> you, you kind of equated some of what was in Dr. Jacobs' books with some of the studies on men in black. What, what were some of the similarities that you kind of saw there? Well, yeah, I mean, until I read his book, I mean, I knew the research, and I got his earlier book, um, you know, The Threat, when that came out, right. late 90s or whatever it was. But it was only when I read his new book that I realized, because I've written three books on the Men in Black, that I realized um, how close some of the reports of the Men in Black were to the so-called hybrids. Now, you know, the when people think of the Men in Black, a lot of people think of like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones you yeah, know, from the movies. Yeah. But the real men in black are sort of far, they don't look like government agents at all. They sort of look far creepier. They're sort of skinny, short, sort of pale skin and large eyes. And they wear these wraparound sunglasses, pull down fedoras, as if they're trying to camouflage themselves and try and move amongst us, which is sort of one of the main themes of, of David Jacobs' book. But some of the things that really hit home were, were things like where he talks about how the hybrids have to be taught to eat food and drink and things like that. And you find that in a lot of um, many black cases where they 
act in an awkward fashion when people try to offer them food or drink. Um, you also find about how, for example, in David Jacobs's book, he talks about um, how the hybrids have to be taught about sex and relationships and intimacy. Right. And there have been some weird cases where the men in black have asked questions of the witnesses about sex. And, but it comes off across in a way as if they don't really understand properly what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, you get strange things like that. And also, um, where there's some cases where the, the hybrids would sort of steal little mementos, you know, when they're mixing with people. And that has turned up in many black cases. There's a famous one from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where a journalist named Mary Heyer, who was investigating Mothman and many black reports, she was confronted by one of these little weird men in black and he stole her pen and then gave this sort of weird cackling laugh and ran <laughs> off into the night. So, you know, you find a lot of things like this, but I guess the, you know, the, when you put all these issues together and the fact that the men in black for the most part kind of look semi-human but semi-alien as well, it sort of really made me think, wow, here's, this is actually a, you know, an extremely close comparison with the men in black. So, um, you know, I found that kind of intriguing. Right. And I believe there was other cases that were in also John Keel described in the Mothman prophecies. Uh, there was other several different cases where I think there was one where a, a man in black came in to uh, visit this family and was basically asking about like the the what utensils he should use to eat and, and yeah. just weird stuff like that. Yeah, and, and bear in mind, you know, that book, well, the investigations, I should, should say, was sort of done back by Keel in the late, late 60s, mid yeah. late 60s. We're talking almost you know, 50 years ago. All the David Jacobs stuff. So it kind of makes right. me think that the hybrid angle is actually not something relatively new. It, it may be newly identified, but it, if it is going on, it seems to be going on for a hell of a long time. What do you think of Jacobs' work? And have you have you guys ever actually met each other? No, I don't think I've ever even spoke to him. Even, yeah. but you know, I mean, I, I find the whole thing fascinating, mainly because, as I said, for years I focused. Uh, you know, a huge amount of research on the men in black, and I see so many parallels. I probably, admittedly, wouldn't have taken so much notice had it not been for the fact that all these really weird and kind of profound similarities sprung out at me when I read his book. So that made me take even more notice of it. But even I'll be the first to admit, when you start talking about aliens that look like us and they're being changed and they're infiltrating us, the more controversial it gets, right. you know, the more it kind of polarizes people into believers and disbelievers rather than, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, I think the more extreme it gets, it, it tends to, you know, focus people from different angles. But, yeah, that, that was the main reason why I found it so interesting was because it, it really automatically, you know, and immediately I realized that what he was talking about actually cropped up in numerous Men in Black stories. You know, one thing, too, that uh, kind of concerns me, and I actually did bring this up with him when we had him on the show, was it, it, it it's kind of like if they if these hybrids or hubrids, as he calls them, if they are so indistinguishable from people, then you're going to have people that whether a significant amount of the population doesn't believe this or not, you're still going to maybe have somebody that does believe it. 
And are people going to start getting paranoid and thinking that there's hybrid aliens or hybrid aliens trying to take over? And, you know, are we still are we going to see people start to get, you know, get hurt? I mean, we have enough uh, mass hysteria uh, as it is in this country, <laughs> you know, let's, let's, it seems we like we need that's to stop their immigration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of these sort of phenomena, when you start talking about people who aren't necessarily real people and things infiltrating us and moving amongst us, I can understand how, you know, it would sort of create this atmosphere of paranoia and just, you know, over-the-top behavior in, in some people. I mean, kind of a perfect analogy was a couple of years ago when we had the Ebola outbreak. You know, I live in Dallas. Right. And, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, the guy who flew over and died from Ebola eventually, um, you know, he was hospitalized in Dallas. And then there were two nurses in Dallas who got Ebola. But fortunately, they recovered. But if you look back at the stories that were circulating there, there were people calling for, you know, Dallas to be quarantined and for emergency laws to be put into place and the Patriot Act and, you know, the military brought in. It was as if, you know, the, as if a zombie virus had broke out in Dallas. It had to be <laughs> contained before America gets, you know, just infected by zombies. And after a couple of weeks, it, well, a week or so, it died down. Everybody forgot about it. But you could still find those stories, you know, saying martial law in Dallas is needed right now. And I think that could be the kind of a similar thing that would or could erupt at least. You know, you would have, even if the theory is not proven, if it was gained substantial, you know, uh, strength and, and movement and, and the, the, the idea of this just really picked up. I can understand that you'd have a few nuts out there who would be sort of roaming the streets, you know, with armed to the teeth, looking for hybrids that still haven't been proven to exist, you know what I mean? Right, yeah, I totally understand. I have a man in black sitting right across the way from me here, Mr. Micah Hanks, and uh, kind of wanted to get his insight a little bit on this, like the, the, what Nick's been saying. My insight on what? <laughs> on, uh, the whole, oh, like, oh yeah, that's right. I was Doctor Jacob stuff. I was deneralized apparently. Uh, yeah, well, you you want my opinion, or you, or you want me to ask Nick his opinion again? Uh, no, your opinion. You want my opinion? Yeah. Well, as far as hybrids uh, in our midst, uh, you know, genetic breeding programs, alien visitation. You know, I suppose anything's possible, but I don't really buy it. <laughs> Yeah, I think David Jacobs' uh, research is interesting, and I've talked about this uh, uh, to you privately, Adam, that uh, I think he's kind of been castigated by the UFO community as a result of alleged you know, uh, misconduct in relation to the Emma Woods affair. And I don't think that, uh, uh, that necessarily that that circumstance um, should have painted him as, in as quite a bad light as it did. And he's put up, in fact, a website that's sort of a rationale for why. Uh, he feels that he was mischaracterized as a result of that. Uh, again, this being something Nick probably knows a lot more about than I do, uh, because I don't follow that angle of, yeah. of, of, of the, the ufological thing as much, I think, um, as, as certain other threads. Um, but again, what I do know of it, and having read some of uh, Jacob's justifications for his attempts at trying to conduct research with regard to, for instance, the Emma Woods affair, it seems that she was a fairly volatile individual. Uh, he had been trying to go about this scientifically and gather samples, including at one point underpants. 
uh, and uh, and he feels that he was mischaracterized for that. And I feel that had he been a scientist who was really trying to go about serious research, uh, obtaining hard physical evidence of something, if it had been anything other than a subject related to, for instance, as it was in this case, alien abduction, uh, it might have seemed more justifiable. I think that what really was the salt on the wound was in addition to the allegations made against him, he was also one of these wackos who was looking into alien abduction. I'm not calling him a wacko, but I'm saying that this is the general attitude that most people right. have. And I, again, I'm someone who more and more my research has led me further and further away from the abduction component. And, and there are good reasons why, which tell you the truth, Nick and I have looked at um, independently and compared notes on a few times because many of the high-profile UFO abductions of yesteryear bear a number of interesting similar threads that suggest time and time again – uh, earthly threads. Uh, one notable example that I won't get into, but I'll mention here is the Antonio Villaboas case from the 1950s. Was it Nick? What was the year? Yeah. Yeah. 50s, yeah. 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 Which was, was 57. A, I think. It was a fascinating story. And, and just to very briefly paraphrase that case, I remember saying, you know, well, surely if this was some sort of an exotic object, you know, he wouldn't have mistaken a helicopter. And I remember Nick Redfern on the telephone with me saying, ah, well, well, mate, you know, let's not jump to conclusions here. And he gives a description from the actual description given by Antonio, which sounded in retrospect, remarkably like a helicopter, which is interesting. And that doesn't say that people don't have strange encounters, weird things don't really happen. And that certain UFOs may not actually be, uh, uh, something of, you know, non-conventional sources. But again, you know, with regard to Jacobs, I think that part of the reason that he's been mistreated and viewed the way that he is is because of a his research and the way that his alleged conduct relates to this, again, seemingly bizarre subject, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that actually, Michael makes good points there. I mean, because the more controversial the subject the investigate is, the more likely you're going to have people, like I say, fall into two categories those who fully buy into it and those who say this is just complete crap you know yeah and and you, it's kind of like the same reason why you have that with the, like the contact team movements for the 50s you know they had massive um you know followings in the 50s but then on the other hand you had people like um donald kehoe and at the time who just had, would have nothing to do with that kind of thing um because it was so extreme, the idea of human-looking aliens with long hair, you know, and hot space babes strutting around and that kind of thing. <laughs> People wrote it off as garbage. And and I think, as I said, that the reason why... I don't say I buy into it, but why I think I may be more open to the, um, the hybrid angle is because of all these su- subtle little things that over the years of doing, you know a hell of a lot of research into the men in black. I found little things that you, you wouldn't really notice or think about had you not sort of really delved into the men in black mystery and seen the parallels. So that's why, I, you know, it, I found it interesting. It wasn't so much I found it interesting because it was just through reading the book. It was because of the tie-ins with the other stuff I'd done that mirrored some of those things. And that's sort of the extent of my you know, interest in it is sort of looking at the idea of, well, are these all manifestations of the same thing? They seem to be. Um, but, you know, but, it, but it's all sort of driven by the parallels between the two different things rather than me just picking up the book and going, wow, you know. And, and, and you can even go back 
and look at maybe a century later from the time from the time period of the the events that you're describing at the uh, the Mothman prophecies, you know, you could go back and look at that and, and say, you know, th- what were the, the, the fairies doing? Yeah. You know, I mean, if there's, there's very similar aspects in fairy lore that there is to this, the, to the whole UFO abduction phenomenon. So where I would think that I would probably disagree with someone like Jacobs. And I said this on the show is that if you're looking at things from a materialistic point of view, I think that, that, that what he's saying makes sense to him. But if you look at it from maybe a more, let's say uh non-tangible or a kind of uh uh you know not inner space not outer space point of view things begin to make a little bit more sense even though you can still go down that rabbit hole and it becomes even more confusing but that's a whole other aspect of it no you're right and um you know i I think this sort of demonstrates sort of the sheer weird nature of the whole ufo phenomenon you become immersed in not just the phenomenon but the weirder aspects of it and then the personalities in the subject and the clashes between personalities and um you know that that but that's ufology you know that's how it's yeah. always been you know somebody um, has an issue with somebody's research today in the same way somebody 60 years ago says well that photograph looks like it you know, that UFO is hanging on a piece of cotton or whatever, you know, you'll always, <laughs> you always get this, um, you know, and, and in that sense, not a great deal has changed. It's just a field filled with controversy and controversial people. When you were in Brazil, was there any, uh, anybody tell you any personal stories that they, that they had? Not really, mainly because of the language barrier more than anything else. Right. Um, but, you know, when I was, you know, able to, although I didn't understand all the lectures, you know, from the images and so on of the case, it was pretty clear, you know, people were talking about a lot of, you know, not lights in the sky or even just UFOs, but sort of face-to-face contact. There was a lot of that, you know, those kind of stories being told in the lectures. Um, you know, and certainly far more than you get in a lot of other countries. So that was sort of a, another kind of trend, not just the hostile type of reports, but far more close encounter type events, you know, literally close encounter events than we seem to get today over here, you know, sort of those good old days of, you know, somebody's driving home late at night and, you know, they have an encounter and they're taken on board a craft. We don't really see that many of those reports now over here, but Brazil seems to still get a ton of them. Nick, when you study this phenomenon and you look at different cultures, do you see differences in the cultures of how they of how the phenomenon manifests and how they react to the phenomenon because you you kind of uh, typified the brazilian is more the brazilian experience is as more of a hostile experience and i suppose that we have that here in like the united states or western europe what have you but there are some more positive experiences but you you kind of typified that theirs is more like you said, more hostile. So do you see some, some differences cross-culturally? Well, yeah, I do. And I think that, that entire issue of, you know, how the phenomenon manifests in one country versus another is interesting. And that, that's one of the reasons why I think that I don't think the UFO phenomenon is visionary. But what I do think is that it may have the ability to sort of manifest in a fashion that is applicable to the people of that era or location or whatever. In other words, 
you know, the uh, the possibility that when people saw the, the Space Brothers in the 50s and that kind of thing, if you look at a lot of those accounts, they, they almost come across as like shamanic accounts, you know, going out into the desert right. and communing with these higher entities. So I sometimes wonder if we've ever really seen these entities the way they really look. You know, maybe one person's space brother is another person's grey, is another person's hybrid, is another person's demon or whatever, or incubus. Yeah. But, you know, all these things seem interlinked and very similar in many respects. But maybe it's not just a case of people interpreting them as incubus or succubus or demons. Maybe that's how they literally looked for the people of those eras in the same way they literally looked like the greys today and they literally looked like long-haired people in the 50s. You know, perhaps a lot of it is rendering the person into an altered state and presenting them in like an archetypal form. Um, you know, I think that might explain why we have sort of a multitude of different entities and a multitude of different type of craft that people see. You know, yeah, people in the 50s and 40s reported flying saucers, but if you got down to the subtle descriptions, you know, it was like almost every craft was slightly different to another rather than just you'd expect coming out of a on a conveyor belt type situation. And so, again, I think that's has a lot to do with this. Um, like in England, you know, certainly when you had all the abduction stuff going on, at a really high level in the US, you know, with the era of like Hopkins and Strieber and all that kind of stuff. In England, you weren't getting much of that. People were still seeing like, you know, the Space Brothers. So yeah. that was even like a cultural thing between the UK and the US, which really Very good point. Yeah. not too much different really, you know, but they were, the, the reports were quite different. It just seems to me that, the, that this phenomenon, that it reflects almost the the concerns, the issues, um, it, it maybe even the you know the zeitgeist of the time, and it seems like whatever these entities are, that they they just reflect that back to us. Well, and again, that could be part of some you know it could be some process we don't understand. I mean, what I would say is that when you get that, it does seem to me that a lot of UFO events are staged. You know, like we used to get all these reports in the past of people running into aliens taking soil samples at the edge of the road. It's like, how many times could they make the mistake of being seen taking soil samples? Right, right. And it's like it is staged. And I think that it's almost like it's a theatrical play. And I think that comes, for some reason, whatever the reason is, I don't know, and I don't pretend to know, but I think there's some reason why they want these encounters to occur. They want to be seen, but they want to be seen as if it's actually happening by accident rather than design. Yeah, exactly. I think they want us to see them. They want <laughs> us to know something's going on. But they do, in a, do it in a way that I said it's like stage-managed, theatrical. And maybe it's done to present themselves in a way that's actually different from what they are. You know, I mean... Maybe it's to try and teach us on an individual basis or help us grow or or maybe, you know, it's something just screw with the natives to see how we can alter their belief systems, you know. Right. Well, Nick, we, um, we're we going to uh, make a call to Area 51 in Roswell, New Mexico. No, not the real Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> well, we right we actually are calling Area Fifty One. <laughs> I appreciate that. Be like phoning some bunker twelve 
yeah. down or something like that. You know? Hey, if you're going to do that, Adam, can I ask Nick my sure. Area 51 mystery? Maybe he could solve it. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Hey, hey, hey Nick. Uh, this, yeah. is, this is Doc Future here. The first time I went to Area 51, the second time I went with the gentleman sitting next to me, but, but, but the first time I went with my older brother, who's a licensed minister, very level-headed guy, quite a bit older than me, and we drove out and got the little map at the Alien for the little black mailbox and where you turn to head up to the, to the sign, you know, you, you go no further than that. Well, we went out there, and of course we picked the ideal time. It just started turning dusk and dark. And we got out on the, the real gravelly road that gets thicker and thicker gravel, I guess, to keep people out uh, up to the entrance. And, of course, you know, it doesn't rain out that uh, area at all up there in the high desert. And so we were just producing this massive plume of dust behind us as we're just slowly trying to drive up to the entrance. And uh, big thick dust, we had this red light that kept shining in our... Uh-oh. Keep talking, Mike. Uh, red light <laughs> shining in the back. And uh, hey, guy, hey, guy, we're, we're in the Should middle of a story. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling an area. This, this is Doc Future. I'm telling a, a, a Area 51 story. If you can bear with me to Nick. So fantastic. Uh, yeah, you might. You could solve this mystery, too. Anyway, <laughs> as we're driving, we see this red light that keeps shining in our the window behind us. And I. I kept thinking, is it my taillight reflecting or something? But there was nothing that we could do to determine it. Well, we started coming up, counting off the tenths of the miles till the map says you get to the area. And it was flat out there. Our headlights could shine everywhere, except there was a little, small, little berm, just slightly taller than a person, that you had to bend to the right to get around to get up to the entrance. And as we came Hmm. up and started going around the corner, there was a car. Again, we hadn't seen a car for, you know, better part of an hour. And there's this car parked there facing the other direction like it was leaving. And there was a man standing next to the door like he was talking to the person in the driver's seat. This man standing with this long robe and this long white beard and holding a staff in his hand. <laughs> and it was so strange because it, it got really, really cold all of a sudden. And, and, and my brother's one of these guys that nothing ever scares him. But he was really unnerved like I was. And... I guess our, our first instinct should have been to stop and find out what was going on. But we were only a stone's throw from where the sign was, the keep out sign. And so we ran up there to uh, go get my picture in front of it. And as soon as we got out, the, the, the lights went out on our car immediately, as soon as we got out of the car. And so we went and turned it back on, and they flashed their headlights up on the mountains around there to let us know that they were there. And so I ran up, got my picture in front of the sign, and immediately hopped back in the car, less than a minute. So we turned around to leave. Now, you have to remember, this is all flat, totally flat out there. The dust cloud plume we were making, you could see for forever. We turn around, and we get to the spot where the car was and the man, and there's nobody to be found. There's, there's the man, the car, nothing. We can look down the road the distance. There's nothing there. And... uh since the year since that happened, I've asked my brother numerous times, did I dream that or was that real? He says, yeah, I experienced the same thing. So I wondered if you had ever, either of you two gentlemen, had ever heard of any kind of apparition of somebody in a robe and a long beard and a staff in his hand around something like Area 51. No, I've never heard anything like that. Well, same here, sir. I know that sounds nuts, and I probably should be institutionalized, but really, probably for other things other than that. But 
but I would you swear. Are friendship, well, is that right? Well, I would Maybe sure. Other people will start seeing it now that you've made it cool. Yeah, probably the power of suggestion. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's what we were just talking about. Yeah, too. either that or I'm going to go pretend I'm that guy and just stand out there and raise some money. <laughs> I'll, I'll just take on that persona. But anyway, I just wondered if y'all ever heard a story like that. Well, guys, we were just joined by Guy Malone. Uh, say, say hello to everybody, Guy, direct from Area 51 in Roswell, Hi. New Mexico. Guy Malone reporting from Roswell. <laughs> yes, I've moved into a little uh, cubicle. It's, it's really called a booth in our local flea market, which is an indoor flea market. So I have an upstairs booth, and randomly I, I was moving into the one that was available. was number 55, and I'm not even all the way moved in yet, and people start moving out of number 51. And actually, they hadn't even been here for a year. Their door's always locked, lights are always off, and somebody told me they pay the rent, but they're never here. And uh, a couple weeks after I started moving into 55, they started moving out of 51. And I'm like, well, i got to take that, you know, if that's available. So, yes, I am in Area 51, uh, FM, I call it. It is my location in Roswell, New Mexico. So um, the Area 51 in Nevada is never open to the public, but I'm here <laughs> several weekdays for you now. Do you think you'll ever get plumbing there or anything? I hate to hear you living out of a cubicle. No, uh, there's no plumbing here, but, well, there, there's plumbing in the sense of um, I can go downstairs and there's a bathroom only for employees of oh. the uh, location. Okay. Every one of the vendors here has a key. There's like, uh, you know, Easily 40 vendors, maybe over 50 since I'm in number 51, but uh, it's not uh, for the public. Well, I, I just, I, oh, I, I was going to hope you could get an apartment one day. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to rephrase or be careful when I say that this is the home of Scott Malone. Oh, uh, yeah. So, guys, what? Uh, Area 51, Area 51's the day job. Got it. Of Guy Malone. And I'm waiting tables at night, as everybody that knows me knows I do some of that. So, so guys, uh, uh, Nick, when was the last time uh, you, you and uh, you and a guy spoke? Well, actually, I ran into Guy um, at the um, com- what was the conference? What was it called again? It's MUFON, I think, Bernalillo, New Mexico. Yeah, I know. I mean, somebody was, but it was the regional MUFON. Yeah, the New Mexico MUFON. That was like a couple of months ago, but that was the first time. I think about a few years, wasn't it, really? Um, it had maybe. been several years. It may yeah, have been Angel Fire a few years ago. It may have been Angel Fire. Good memory. Angel Fire was 2009. I was just thinking about you and that event. Yeah, that, Thank that you was again. Probably um, yeah, that's probably the last time I saw you. Yeah, 2009. I was I was thinking, uh, if I, next time I see Nick, I should thank him again for reading my paper that I presented there before I went on. It gave me a little more confidence knowing that I could present that view, you know, with you scanning through it to make sure it was actually logical, coherent, and all that. That, that really helped me by the time I got up on the podium to deliver the talk that you had kind of read it and said, yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, you present logical argument, yada, yada, yada. Thank you again. That's all. <laughs> and, and Mike, Dr. Future, it was great talking to you on the, are you staying around as well? I'm here. I, I have we nowhere have else to go. Answer. Yeah, we, we, we've got we've got him, we've got him tied up uh, to the chair to the couch right yeah, now. Yeah. So yeah, Robert Hyde's here too. Hey, <laughs> hey, guy. Uh, since you've been back to Ros, 
Roswell, have, has there been any more sightings of that weird creature there with the silver face and the upside-down sunglasses? Not in a while. Really? I've not, I've not seen, I've not run into him, I'll put it that way. Because he's more famous than the, than the aliens at Roswell, the old ones that crashed. <laughs> yeah. The he, gray or the green skin, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. Depending on who's lying to you. you know. Yeah. Yeah, the upside down sunglasses, that was the creepiest part to me. Well, well gentlemen, awesome. since, you, since you guys, since you get, uh, guy, you're in Roswell. And, you know, you, you guys have a very similar, I think, take on what happened there. I mean, it, what's kind of like you guys take on what happened there in uh, at Roswell? Are we, ever, are we ever going to, yeah, are, you ever, are we ever going to find out what actually happened? Or is it just going to continue to be kind of delved into mythology, really? I am personally of the view that everyone who honestly was there and knows firsthand what happened is dead and buried or senile if they're even still alive. Yeah. Nick can probably do the research and tell you exactly where every member of the 509 <laughs> Army uh, Air Force Base is today. So uh, he would speak to the authority. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone that really knows. I don't think the real truth will ever come out. The best we can do, uh, Nick and I, uh, working very independently, uh, both put forth that man-made view that uh, he's popular for in his book, um, Body Snatchers in the Desert, and that I do as a lecture, uh, Roswell 47, What Really Happened. You know? I, I don't think anyone can uh, disprove us firsthand anymore. It, it's really all a matter of adding up the research and evidence available. What do you think about that same question, Nick? Well, yeah, I think the problem is, you know, the further the case goes into history, you know, we're talking almost 70 years now, you know, 68 years ago. So if you had a guy involved in that case who was 22 at the crash site, he'd be 90 now. That's how long ago this yeah. all is. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think the problem is with something like Roswell, clearly something significant happened. Now, if the material evidence, you know, was extraterrestrial, then clearly that material would have been preserved and, and still to this day, you know, the bodies would be some sort of preservation tanks, that kind of thing. And there would be massive files. The fact that none of that has surfaced suggests that if it's true, then it's in such deep lockdown, there's no way to get it. Now, with the idea of some sort of classified military operation, you know, using human subjects, well, when I did my book, the one thing that all the people agreed on was that when all of this was shut down, apparently, in sort of late 47, that all the records were destroyed because they were sort of, you know, perceived yeah. as being semi-illegal. And there was no need for them to keep the remains of wrecked gliders and huge balloons. And there was no need for them to keep the, the corpses of the people who were killed because they didn't learn much from the high-altitude exposure experiments. So in other words... What they all told me was everything was destroyed. Now, in that, if, so in other words, if the human experimentation angle is the real one, then we'll never prove it because everything was shredded and destroyed way back when. And you, you, I mean, logically, you wouldn't keep the remains of, you know, um, right. pro, like, rockets and gliders if they didn't work. You just get scrap it. And I said for the, if it was semi-illegal, people protecting themselves by destroying all the files would make sense. And, and we do know that 
you know, even the General Accounting Office and the Air Force admitted that when they did their investigations, they find that they found that a bunch of, you know, a, a substantial amount of uh, records from the old Roswell Army Airfield was missing from 45 through to 49, and that's never been found. You know, a lot of UFO research will say, well, it's hidden. And I think that's a lot of it is driven by the fact that they want it to be hidden because it means there's a chance of finding it. But if it isn't hidden, but it really was destroyed, then we'll never know. Yeah. Another thing I wanted I agree to... entirely with you, by the, way, by the way, that everything was just destroyed. They knew they'd be... It was, if it was technically illegal, it, it was a crime against humanity, what they were doing. Right. And so... Just, yeah, bury everything, wash your hands of it, gentlemen. We will never speak of this again. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Well, those of us in the Collins elite know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did I out myself? I'm sorry. Hey, by, by the way, I, I do have a brush with greatness with that, though. I do have a direct relationship with somebody in the aviary. Are you familiar with the aviary? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, no, not personally. Well, but you're aware of this group supposedly kept all those secrets about it. One of the guys in the aviary was a guy I worked with on a daily basis. And one day I saw him outed on coast to coast, his identity. Uh, he was known as Hawk in the aviary. And his, his wow. real name was Ernie Kellerstrass. And he was a colonel who worked in the foreign technology director, which was a place I was offered a job at Wright-Patterson when I worked really? there. And I worked with him daily. He, he was... Uh, working for SRL as a contractor, and he and I worked daily, and he told me about um, his absolute knowledge of the F uh, the UFO phenomenon and the records that he had seen in the government. And this guy was a colonel. I mean, he had really raised up there, and he, he had some responsibility with that, particularly when they had aerial manifestations. And I know some of the guys that he worked with sort of just raised their eyebrows at him, and for a while, I had tried to get him to come on Future Quake, but he, he was so disturbed. I, I started Future Quake after I moved from there, but he was so disturbed about some of the dark things he found from it, he was disturbed to talk about it. But his cover was blown anyway on Coast to Coast when uh, they identified the same guy. So it sort of gave him some additional credibility. Really? Interesting. Wow. Yeah, Ernie Kellerstrass was his name. Great guy, very smart person. And, uh, you know, I can vouch for his credentials and having worked in that other stuff. And, and, and he it sort of disclosed a lot to me long before he was outed. What's that? Uh, the uh, Nick, um, the uh, we talked about the aviary a little bit with um, Adam Gorightly the other night, which is like the first part of this show. And <laughs> Richard Doty came up in that conversation as well. Have it, it, what Mike is saying is is true here. Have they uh, has the identities of the of those members of the aviary have those all been revealed? Have the what been revealed? Sorry, uh, the the identities of the members of the aviary. Um, Hold one. Not, uh, not as far as I know. I don't think they all have. I mean, you know, it depends on who, for example, how many we we know about in the first place. You know, I yeah. mean, when. These names, these bird names apply. There may be some that, you know, we haven't actually been told the names. I mean, the code names even. But, um, but you, you know, you find a lot of groups like this, sort of think tank type groups. Um, people get together and hold official positions and they have, 
you know, they're sort of digging into the UFO subject as well. And so, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there weren't sort of other kind of similar groups to the Avery and the Collins elite and all that kind of thing. They're sort of like think tank groups with their own personal agendas and right. ideas on the phenomenon and what's going on and how they all interpret it. And um, so I think that, you know, when you talk about the Avery, there could be, you know, multiple kind of levels of, of groups like that. One of the points that I was going to bring up was I heard a radio interview with a researcher and I've forgotten his name. Uh, but he's done a lot of research into the Roswell crash. And one of the points that I thought that he brought up that was really valid, and this had to do with the undertaker, uh, Glenn Dennis, who claimed that yeah. he had the um, nurse that said that she saw the bodies and all this. Well, the big point in that was, was that Dennis did not come out with that, I till believe, into the late 80s. And that's 40 years after the fact. So yeah, how can correct. we actually say that there, you know, that's not exactly eyewitness testimony there, you know? Glenn Dennis's drawings, which are nowadays famous, they're the only thing that you have. If you have an image of in your head of, of what the bodies were at Roswell, right. it's because it's based on the drawings that he didn't do. He actually uh, recruited an artist to do for him he said this is what this nurse drew for me on a cocktail napkin or some such thing but i've lost her original drawing from 47 so you're right it's a, it's a third-hand drawing produced decades later by someone who's half remembering or or i'm, I'm going to say making up that part of the story i have no i don't know if nick or mike will disagree with me on that i have no problems with yes he did get the phone calls uh, I don't think if, if he even went to the base that he could have gotten too far being a civilian, though. I think his story gets kind of embellished, you know, self-embellished over the years is what some locals have said. You know, it's like every time they would they would hear it in the, the late 70s or the 80s and then the 90s and then the 2000s. It's, yeah, oh, man, that story just keeps getting better and better with the telling <laughs> right. is one of the uh, phrases I've heard around here. But the nurse, Naomi Self, he finally confessed was her name. Nobody's been able to find her. Like you can track down all the member, everyone that worked there or was assigned there. But I think most of the big names in the field, probably I shouldn't put words in the mouths of people like, you know, Randall Schmidt, Carrie Friedman. I think they would all say that they don't believe the part about the nurse that ever existed either though, right. because everybody has tried to find her. Agree or disagree on that, Nick? Well, yeah, I think the big problem is that regardless of whether or not the nurse story is true, the fact that he admitted to changing the name and obfuscating the name just blows any credibility out the window. You know, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Um, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter if there was a nurse, but because by tainting it, by admitting, well, you know, I didn't give you the real name the first time and then changing it again and all this, it's that inevitably creates doubt. And when you have doubt and you have somebody who changes their story, it doesn't matter if the story's true. It's it's tainted beyond repair, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah, Dick, if you as a researcher have gone on the record, hard copy published a book based on someone's story that they revealed to you, you so your reputation, your publisher, a lot of hard copies of a book are now on the line. 
And then they admit later, well, I've made this part up or this has changed. I was trying yeah. to check whatever. But I think Adam's original point was that th- those drawings themselves are, I would therefore conclude based on what we're talking about, is that they're, they should be considered 100% unreliable or tossed out because a nurse who doesn't exist drew them in front of him decades later he re- and he conveniently lost that drawing. But decades later, he hires or recruits somebody else, a professional artist, to draw it based on his verbal remembrance of what she said in in 47. She allegedly said in 47. So it, it just seems like that is completely made up and unreliable is yeah. what I would argue for. And, and, and the there's a lot of the story. It. There's a lot of the story that's based off of that, too. Yeah. Good. The mythology, as you said. Right. You're, you're correct. It's, I, I've referred to it as a modern mythology uh, in one of my own ways it's, it's the way i put it in my book i say i think i can i'm unfair in rightly calling this a modern mythology nowadays what i do think is like really interesting though is if you read the air force's uh crash test dummy report you know the second one report <laughs> they put out that just dealt with the dummies they actually didn't dismiss glenn dennis's story in fact they went out they provided what they felt was a rational explanation for what he'd seen yeah. and which was in relation to uh, injured airmen and uh, you know the crowd, the whole crash test dummy scenario. So that, that was sort of really ironic that you, a lot of people in ufology, were saying, you know, this story is just garbage. You know that, that <laughs> Dennis is telling, and the Air Force is like, no, 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 we actually think there's something to it, and it's like injured airmen being taken to the hospital and all that kind of thing. So, in other words, he was not the only the, one saying there were bodies, though, was there? He's, he's not the only one, at, at least not in that point no. in time, the eighties. Okay, yeah. So they weren't responding only to him. I apologize for interrupting there. No, no, no. no but, they, but it is kind of ironic that the Air Force, in a strange way, actually said, well, yes, Glenn Dennis did see something, but they, you know, they didn't, obviously didn't say it was aliens. But they said, Try oh, to yeah, validate they, it. Yeah they, yeah, they tried to validate it rather than say, you know, you're full of it or whatever. Right, exactly. Maybe uh, that was just done out of like a politeness or something i don't know but um but it was kind of strange uh well, you and i are both correct in what we posit there were some bodies they had to explain away yeah. somehow yep. yeah. so. well we're almost out of time guys but uh I, I want to get from both of you kind of like what's next uh what's next on the plate for you guys uh starting with you nick what uh what books are coming up one of my big interests, you probably know, is cryptozoology, and I've got a book coming out um, on the Loch Ness Monster, which looks at the, but it nice. looks at the, from a very different alternative angle, it deals with all the, sort of, a lot of the weird paranormal stuff surrounding Loch Ness, like Alistair Crowley having a house there, and UFO sightings over the loch, so, in other words, it's more of like a, like a 40 and Keelian look at the, the history of the Loch Ness Monster, rather than the idea of it being a biological animal. See, I told you Alistair Crowley was going to come up sometime tonight. <laughs> Every week. It's going to happen. It's, it always happens on this show. <laughs> and, and, and Guy, for you, what uh, – and Mike has a question real – has a question. But first of all, Guy, what's what's on, next on the plate for you since you've now well, I think it's very gone group, back it's to very Roswell? Here should create a uh, – we should create our own think tank like we were talking about. We can become our own cause. Yeah, aviary group something. That's right. Just the people on this call right now could probably <laughs> stand the tide. My yeah. main goal is I'll be presenting a mini 
uh, condensed lecture, 25 minutes or so, of the Roswell 47 that I do in the hour talk on that you've probably seen, or most of you have seen. But um, I, I think the biggest thing is to get that view out there. Um, here's, an, here's a logical... Yeah. Is Nick still on? Okay. Uh, the question I have for both of you all is about the other big uh, event, <laughs> UFO event, and that that pertains to the Kelly Green men. Do you think that they're going to be coming back? <laughs> I don't know why you're I'm laughing over there. This one. Are you, are you, I'm unfamiliar Nick, with this Nick one. are you familiar with the Kelly Green men? Do you mean the Kelly Hopkinsville one? Yeah. Uh, in Hopkinsville, yeah, yeah. yeah. Back in the 50s. 55, yeah. Uh, I seriously doubt they're going to come back after 60 years. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I had heard they were having the 50th anniversary, because it's right here in this general area, and as you know, it's the only UFO report that not only had large numbers of witnesses, but it's the other one where where Kentuckians actually repelled by force a UFO invasion. And when I went to the UFO uh, Mm. data center there in Roswell, to get in advance of my interview to get some data on it, they looked at me like I was crazy. They had actually they'd never heard of it in the library, and they started researching it. And they said, "Oh my goodness, this is the most reported UFO event in our entire day." having a gunfire battle with these aliens that were attacking their house. So I just wondered if you all thought that they, they might reappear again. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I defer to Nick because I'm not familiar with the Kelly Green Man other than that's the event you go to, you try to go to every year, right, Adam? Uh, I, I think I tried yeah. to get, I wanted to go, but, uh, <laughs> we're going it didn't year. happen. Well, no, we're going to go next year. For Nick, that's really the missing link in his research. I think really <laughs> Nick has let down the community by not really going after the one serious one. Probably is a well, cover I mean, up. The, the, well, I mean, there's not much you can do with a case that's 60 years ago and, and they vanished into the woods, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what can you do about it? Yeah, unless, unless you're part of the cover up. <laughs> Unless it's the Redfern axis. Well, no, you can't do anything with it. I mean, you know, it's kind of like saying somebody saw a Bigfoot in the woods 60 years ago. Go out there and investigate it now. Well, what are you going to find apart from squirrel crap, you know? Well, you know, us Kentuckians, (laughs) we we actually repulsed them just like the Redcoats in the Battle of New Orleans. They they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles. So, you know, I think we need to learn from them what we need to do for the next wave that comes. Was that a Johnny Horton reference? <laughs> yes, Johnny Horton. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much for, for being part of the 100th episode extravaganza. We really, we really, really appreciate it. Super pleasure, man. Thank you. Thanks for uh, calling us on. Absolutely. And at some point, uh, we'll have, uh, you know, each of you guys on for full episodes yourself. So. And we'll get an update from Guy and Nick. But I'd love to talk about any book that, that you write. So, okay, cool. Absolutely. Thanks. You all have a gentlemen, have a very good evening. You too, guys. See you, nice. nice. we'll you too, friend. We'll be bye. back with, bye uh, bye. with some more people. Back, guys, for the final segment, our next to final segment of the uh, Conspiracy Normal 100th Extra episode extravaganza Scott call edition and we have on the line 
uh, Mr. Rocky Stucci. And we were supposed to have Mr. Scotty Roberts, but he is MIA, missing in action. Maybe he's maybe he he went back to Egypt or something. But uh, we know where he really is. He's getting beat up right now. Let's just let's just. Bring to- <laughs> <laughs> is he getting domestically abused? He's getting domestically abused. <laughs> <laughs> Rocky, it is so good to talk to you, man. It's been it's Thank been a long man. time. You know, we hey. had you. We kind of did like a crossover episode. It was uh, myself and Rob, and then uh, with you, we kind of put it out as like a. Crossover between Conspiracy Normal and EBN back in, I really think that was June, like beginning of June of this year. And this has been kind of a momentous year for us because we also uh, are on your uh, and Scotty's uh, network now, uh, IPBN FM, and really happy to really happy to be there. And, and it's been a really momentous year for you too. You know how how are things going with your radio show and. Uh, well, things are going good, but before I even speak of anything, sure. I congratulate you guys because uh, I was you. having a conversation with somebody the other day, and we were talking about this industry in general, and, and, and you know, you, you you guys see it, I see it, and all the people that are with you right now, we witness this all the time, is that people come into this business, and within three weeks, they think they're going to be like a Rush Limbaugh, or they're going to be super famous, and mm-hmm. uh, because they don't get the results they get right off the bat, a lot of people walk away, so it, it takes a lot of dedication and loyalty to what we do in this industry. And there's many times where we feel alone and we put all this work and effort into it and, and we hope for the results and we hope for the listeners to follow what we have the passion in. And for you guys to make it to this point, well, you know, 100th episode, that is a huge, huge feat. So hats off to you guys and That's much, right. much congratulations. Absolutely. Thank you. Amen. To that. I, I really think that I never didn't think that we were ever going to get to this point. Um, when I first started this, 100 episodes seemed a long way off but yet here we are and but we're going to continue fashion, going man. yep so anyways about the show ebn um you know i don't know we're just we're causing trouble we're we're, we're ruffling some feathers but uh you know i used to do a lot of paranormal i used to do a lot of paranormal shows and right. there was something missing when i was doing the paranormal i just you guys know i have this huge passion within the field you guys know that i do a lot of work here especially locally within the twin cities but, uh, you know, when it comes to radio and, and my messages and what I wanted to present to the audience, uh, something was missing with me. It just, it's just a lot of people that I was talking to and then I was interviewing. It just to me, and I say this respectfully, but it was always just another ghost story to me. And when you have this experience in the field of the paranormal, the hardest thing to sell to the audience is the emotion that is supported with the story. And I've talked with Scotty about this and, and many other people is how do you sell the emotion that you experience when you actually have a true paranormal event. And that's difficult to do. So that's where I kind of made a little bit of a shift and I kind of brought myself to current events. And when I made this shift in the current events, things just completely exploded. And and I got picked up by multiple networks. And I also signed a contract here with the local Twin City Station talking about current events. But it's a little aggressive. It's kind of in your face uh, type of show. But, you know, the reality is reality. And I believe in this country and I believe in the Constitution and I believe in which so many people have lost their life fighting for for this country. And and I wanted to produce that. I wanted to bring that to an audience. And that's kind of the shift that we made. And things have been absolutely phenomenal, man. Why do you think that there was uh, people have kind of shifted over to that instead of like the paranormal? You think that was just like the interest just wasn't there as far as discussing the paranormal aspects and the 
You know, I know on our show, you know, we try to mix things up a, you know, a little bit between between the two. I think we do an okay job with it, but you know, sometimes I wonder if, especially with like the ghost stuff, whether that just stuff just gets old, and how much more can you really can you really talk about it? Well, there has to be a point to where are you learning something, or is the audience learning something from the people you're bringing on your shows? And right, and you know, with and. There, I guess in the ghost hunting culture, there's only so much you can learn. And now you can become much more advanced. You got people like Micah Hanks and other people that really bring things to the table, really educational things to the table. And they go so much beyond it. They talk about physics and they talk about the universe. And um, and I was not like that. I'm very mediocre uh, of an intellect when it comes to those things. And, you know, I interview Micah Hanks and, and I become dumbfounded. He, he starts talking and, and I have to start Googling the words that he's saying because I don't even understand what he's saying sometimes. But uh, and I say that respectfully, of course. That's, just, that's really just my accent, by the way. Rocky. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saying potato. It's just the way I say it. OK, potato. <laughs> but, you know, there is a passion there still. And I, I love the paranormal field. I love doing field work. I absolutely love it. Uh, you know, then again, what is research really? I mean, uh, it, it do, am I doing it to do research or am I doing it because there's just a passion there and I'm just trying to get a personal understanding and, uh, and there's so many different branches of that tree, you know, when it comes to religion, when it comes to science, when it comes to the tools that we use within the field, when it comes to approach and, you know, then you have the psychics and the mediums and the demonologists and the, it goes on and on and on. But I think, uh, gentlemen, I think what the, the big kick was when I made the transfer over into the current events field is that there's a lot of people that are extremely passionate about what's happening today in our society, in our world. And um, a lot of people are concerned about some things that are happening. A lot of people are afraid of some of the things that are happening. And I think it's a relief that when you have somebody who's willing to come forward and speak what so many people are afraid to say, people resonate to that because a lot of people, we've, we've become such a politically correct society that everybody's afraid to say something without offending somebody. And, uh, it's, it's a voice for the people, and I believe within my area, I know some people kind of think I get a little off the end, but I'm just speaking from the heart. And it's unfortunate that these days that people who feel speaking their mind is the wrong thing to do is that's kind of the society that we have become, and that's very unfortunate. What's the biggest concern for you right now, kind of like in this, this country, political that, climate? That's, that's my biggest concern is the future of this country. And, and, you know, I'm doing a lot of research right now when it comes to, let's just say, social engineering. And I know you guys, everybody in that room right now with you are very familiar with what I'm talking about when it comes to social engineering. Uh, but I'm also going a lot deeper. I'm doing a lot of research right now on the Muslim Brotherhood. I'm doing a lot of research on all the organizations affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And um, they call it um, civilized jihad. Uh, we don't see civilized jihad as much as we see it in the European countries. I mean, we look at Australia right now. We look at Germany right now. We see what happened in France. That's not civilized jihad. But in the United States, because of the United States and with our Second Amendment and, and other rules of law that we have in this country, they call it civilized jihad and how they had to manipulate, man, manipulate our system and infiltrate our system from the inside out. And it is not a radical belief and this is not a conspiracy theory. This is something that is really happening. And if we don't get control of this, and it's not so much what I'm worried about for me, it's my children and the future that my children have and their children have. And it's going to get a lot worse if we don't get a grip of what's happening right now. I'm not saying that Muslims are bad. You guys know i got many Muslim friends. I'm talking about the radical side of things and the takeover. And, and uh, you know, we see what's happening throughout the world, and it's starting to happen here. 
and with the whole social engineering and, and you see this hatred towards police officers and you see a college teachers getting pushed out of, you know, they can't, they're getting forced out of their colleges because these college kids are so off the wall these days that if the teachers don't believe in what they believe and they force them out. We see 13 year olds fighting their school teachers and, and we're seeing this big societal change and how and when did this happen and who's behind it and, and what's, what's the motive behind it and that's what concerns me the most. What led you into looking into that? What was what was kind of like the 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 chain of subjects that you uh, you found that kind of got you to that point? Well, it's not so much the politics that got me into it. It's right. it's you know you guys I I observe things and you know you guys know where I come from. You know I lived a tough life, but I made those choices. I put myself in these situations and yes. And so I, I'm very good at picking out you know like let's just say like a con artist or you know you can't bullshit a bullshitter type of guy. You know right. And, I, and I'm watching this change. And, and I remember when I was a kid, my dad always said how things were different when he was young and how things were changing. But this is different compared to what my father referred to. And this is different compared to even what I went through as a child of what we're seeing in society today. And I do believe that media plays a big part of it. I mean, look at the people, our general society. Look at who they, they idolize. They, they idolize some of these Hollywood folks that are just the worst examples to look up to. I mean, we used to look up to pro athletes when we were kids. And now we're looking up to Justin Bieber. It's um, there, there's been a big shift in, in these. It's pretty sad. Yeah. These kids are, I think that's what bothers me is that when I go to these schools and I talk to these schools about bullying and when I go to these schools and I direct who I'm talking to more towards the teachers and the parents, because it's, it's what we teach our kids is how we educate our kids to be as an individual, because us as parents are the greatest teachers. And I'm seeing this huge shift in schools of violence. And, you know, we're seeing 11 year olds trying to commit suicide this was unheard of back when I was young. So why are these kids these days so cruel? And why are kids at 11 years old trying to commit suicide? And that's kind of what started it, where I started looking really deep into this, the different changes in our society and, and our cultures. And, and um, then it brought me into the government and, and everything else that we're witnessing today and these big corporations and banks. And it's a mess, brothers. It's a mess. That does pretty much blow my mind that you can have children that that young that would commit suicide you know 11 way. years old man you know there's, there's got to be old. so many factors that go into that one of them probably would be like the drugs and the uh the psychotropic drugs that that they're really not supposed to be putting kids on well you know and that is a big part and i i'm sure you guys have indulged into the whole uh the pharmaceutical or what i call pharmageddon uh, we, we, our culture, the United States, we have the highest rates of just about every type of addiction throughout the world. And it's funny because there's countries like Egypt where you can go into a store and buy morphine over the counter. Yeah. But yet the morphine uh, drug abuse rate is higher still in the United States when we have to pay for it and get it through prescription. Um, so it is. A lot of it is drugs. A lot of these kids that I deal with and these families that I deal with, they start out by stealing their parents' prescriptions, medi prescription medications. Uh, you know, right away, if you're a child and you have a sore toe, well, that means you have ADHD. So we're going to put you on Ritalin or we're going to put you on Adderall. Uh, there's always a pill now for everything. And, and I believe that the more pills you take, and I'm just speaking from experience now, the more pills that you take, you start actually losing your identity as a person, as a human, uh, because we, we become so dependent for these pills to make us the machine that we are. And, and you're exactly right. I think the, the pharmaceutical industry has a big play in it. Uh, media, TV, what we watch on TV is completely different. And I believe that has a big play in it. And of course, parents need to start taking more responsibility into how they're raising their children and, and who their children are associating with. And, and we need to start reestablishing respect and loyalty and kindness back to our kids. 
Could I interject something here? Sure. Um, on this topic, some research that I did on trying to find out how prevalent uh, this is, if you add the numbers for the people who are on some kind of psychotropic reality-altering drugs by prescription, and then you add those who are abusing prescription drugs that have similar effects for some reason, as well as those who abuse illegal drugs that are the, you know, the hard drugs, the, the right. reality-altering, the total adds up to more than 50% of the American population. 50%. So this says the majority of people are on some artificial form of reality. And I was talking to a principal the other day, and I just asked him what it was on his mind. I said, what's, what's really been on your mind? He said, I, I have this incredible fear of my, my entire uh, body of students that are so young, and all of them are on the edge right. with the potential of being violent having a psychotic, violent event. And he said they're also being exposed to home environments that no child should ever be exposed to. Absolutely. And, and my opinion is, if this overwhelming data that keeps coming out, and I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place for pharmaceuticals for momentary sure. times of crisis right, to right. get people through extreme grief and crisis, but for all the concern of other things in society, you mentioned like, you know, like the Sharia law stuff and all this other kind of stuff. But to me, this is the elephant in the room for all of these other concerns. They have to take a back seat to what you're talking about right now. If we, if we have a majority of a population that can't deal with reality and, and you see, you see the uh, comments on the, uh, even on television for these drugs that they can cause psychotic episodes uh, where, where people, we don't have any kind of long-term data on the effect on people, whether they're going to need ever stronger doses to maintain help, or if they just, again, uh, have some other negative effect. That to me, if I was the president on down, this should be job one Absolutely. is what is happening to the sanity of our society. Gentlemen, it's scary. It, it, it's scary. It, it is definitely scary. And I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, over 50%, that's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Yeah. So you're a minority if you're not using some chemical means to alter your reality. Isn't that something? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it really is. And, and I don't mean that as a disparagement against people who, who need treatment and have found some relief right. uh, with that. There's, I mean, our diet, our diet is so screwed up, the food that we're eating, hmm. that could induce all sorts of problems that have required desperate measures to fix. Of course, mm -hmm. the real fix is with our food supply on that aspect of it. But we've had so many other factors that, you know, I have empathy for people who have been desperate uh, for some relief, but we that doesn't mean we still don't have a big problem that we all need to decide and put focus our energies. You know, it's almost like a space program. We need to put that kind of level of effort for the mental health of our entire society. Exactly. Well, and just uh, to, to kind of piggyback off what you're saying, look at our veterans. Look what our veterans are going through. 22 a day are committing suicide. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this treatment called e EMDR. Um, I, I had it. It's, it's for people with PTSD. And it's a very simple treatment, very effective treatment. It seems to work fairly quickly. And insurance companies won't cover it. Just, they will not cover it because you don't need medications for it. It's a very simple, uh, cost-friendly treatment. And um, people are dying every day, but yet we can't get this to these people because they either don't have the benefits for it uh, or they don't have a knowledge that it even exists. So um, you're exactly right. We, we, we're broken. We're broken in many ways. And so this is exactly why 
I, I've made this big shift and I, and I talk about what I talk about. And honestly, gentlemen, I, I think you guys are quite aware that I'm not afraid of, of opinions. I'm not afraid of what people think about what I discuss. Um, you know, if, if they can walk the shoes that I walk and been through what I've been through in life, then I'll respect their opinion a little bit more. But there's things that need to be addressed and you can't be afraid to bring them up and you can't be afraid to talk about it because there's going to be people out there. No matter what you talk about, no matter what it is, somebody's always going to be offended. And uh, we are uh, an offended, <laughs> happy society today. You know, I was talking to uh, Micah earlier today about this whole idea of just like manufactured outrage. And it seems like so much of the time that uh, you go on Facebook and it seems like everybody has this hate of the week, whether it's the Cecil the Lion thing or whether it's uh, or whether it's Starbucks with the coffee cups. And it doesn't really matter what ideological position you're coming from. It's just like so everybody, everybody's always got something to hate when you go on when you go on any kind of social media. Mine's conspiranormal right now. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> the, the, the hate conspiranormal movement. <laughs> the scapegoating movement. What were you going to say, Micah? Oh, well, I was just going to say I have a different name for that, and I call it the culture of perpetual offense. Yeah. Because people just, they, they do, they stay offended rather than getting involved. Right. And I think when we when we have situations like what I say allegedly because this is so ridiculous that I still wonder if it actually happened. But as reported by news, no, where, where was this? Was it New Jersey, I believe, last week? And Rocky, you may have seen this, in fact. Uh, there was a city councilwoman who had quit. She left her position because she was so offended that the town had decided to erect a Christmas tree. And and putting mm-hmm. up the Christmas tree was offensive because, of course, this was insivi- you know, insensitive, the celebration of a Christian holiday. We can't do that anymore. And so she resigned from her position on city council because of this. And I'm thinking, you know, when we're getting to a point where putting up a damn Christmas tree is offensive, <laughs> this is something that we have to we have to live by action. And I'm going to have to, with a heavy heart, re- resign from my post as as one of the council members of this of this city. You know. What if your relative had been hung from a Christmas tree? <laughs> well, that must have had really strong branches, I guess. Yeah. You <laughs> wouldn't be singing "Oh Tannenbaum." You know, that, I guess my my uh, my relatives would have had to have been little little Christmas ornaments, little elves or balls or something like that. You know, but I, I can think of another crude joke to tell here. But you know, but Rocky, man, you're you're hitting all the right points here, and it's it's true. People are more worried about expressing how offended they are by meaningless things than they are concerned with actually making progress and solving problems. And when it comes to mental health and concerns about something like mental health, I mean, again, I say that a, a number of the violent crimes and also the, the, you know, everything from shooting sprees to, to, you know, issues, social issues that include homelessness and whatnot, these have to do almost in every instance with middle health issues and treatments that could probably seek to address the broader problems rather than just placating and, and, and placeholding to try and get by, which is what I see more and more of these days in our society. We don't want real solutions. We just want to try and we want to try and have a quick solution, a simple solution, and preferably one that requires tons of government funding to be able to do it. And we want to just try and get by and hope that we don't piss everybody off in the process. If people would stop being pissed off and that they would actually move toward common sense, 
uh, effective solutions to these kind of social problems, we would actually be making more progress. But we're not making progress because people are more concerned about being pissed off. Right. Than solutions. That, that's really how I feel. And and I'm not that, doing I'm, anything about it. And, and I've like, offended. Yeah, have to assign blame. Yeah. We don't want to waste time on solutions. We need to assign blame. Exactly. First. Yeah. Let's right. get our priorities straight. Yeah. You see, I've just pissed off half the listeners just by saying that. <laughs> but, but to that, to that, I say, and you know, people will call me a blowhard. You know, they call every one of us that. You know, and Rocky, you're no stranger to that too. I'm, I'm afraid because people who are willing to say, you know, here's some numbers. Look at these statistics about violent crime. Look at these statistics about drug abuse. Look at these statistics about bullying. Look at these statistics about any number of situations that are affecting our society. People can complain and they can bitch and moan, but they really don't want solutions unless they're, you know, and if they did, I would say they would be more inclined to get active like you're doing. And I think that like having an intelligent conversation about these issues helps facilitate. It helps move us in a goal-oriented way toward better solutions. So, I mean, Rocky, I just got to say I'm sitting back listening, and I want to commend you for being somebody who points these kind of things out and says, you know what, we, we do need to really look at common-sense solutions. We really have to try and move more toward trying to be oriented in a, in a way in society that is less offended all the time by everything and more concerned with really prog- uh, progressing. Rocky, I, I want to ask you something I've never I've never asked you in the past. And and when you go to schools and when you talk to kids, I mean, wh- what is it that you that you tell them? What 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 do you talk about w- when you talk to these people? Well, the, one of the biggest things I, I try to point out is is trying to see that you know. Here's the thing is that when you're talking to a child, you need to speak to them in a way that a child is going to absorb what you're saying. And I'm very immature, so I'm really good at that part. Um, okay, that was a joke. Nobody got it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just like parents, when I talk to parents, I'm really in their face because it is what it is. Reality is yeah. reality. And, and to a lot of people, the problem isn't a problem until it actually happens to them. But when I talk to children and, and there's stories, there's specific stories that I bring up. And and I actually posted a video a couple of weeks ago and I just I was in tears by some of the messages I received from people because it's telling me how many people are dealing with this with their children in schools. And, and I, I try to get these kids to. Be in someone's position. Like I went to an event a few years back. Uh, the kid was in fifth grade, going to sixth grade. And so you change school, so it's a big deal. And he went up on stage and he talked about the three friends that were nice to him in five years. That's all he could remember. Yeah. And he talked about it for 12 minutes for the three people that were actually kind to him in three whole years. And I was sitting right next to his dad and grandfather. And try to try to picture what the father and the grandfather were going through while they were watching their grandson and their son up on stage talking about three people that were nice to him. When kids just want to go to football games, they just want to have girlfriends, they just want to be part of society, they want to be part of the friendships, they want to be on the playground playing with everybody, but they can't because of the cruelty of these children. And the cruelty of these children is learned from the behavior of the parents for, mo- uh, for most of the part, or they, they learn from the people that are around the most. And so the parents have to take responsibility of the way that their children act. And it was funny because when this little child got up to walk up to the stage, everybody avoided him like he had the plague. And the funny thing is, is that the entire crowd started laughing, the adults thought that behavior was funny and that's the problem that's the problem that the adults in that school thought that behavior that these kids were acting like was funny treating this kid like a little piece of sand and that's disgraceful and that's disrespectful and at the end of this event i went up to this little kid and i got on a knee and i said you taught me more in 10 minutes than any adult could teach me in a lifetime your courage to get up on that stage and talk about what you talked about is more than anybody in the school could ever do at any time so i says i will never forget you and, you know, then, it, you know, you, you try to present this to these kids. You try to present to these kids, what if you were sitting in the lunchroom by yourself every day for five years? What if you wanted to go to birthday parties, but nobody ever invited you? 
you got to try to make them feel that emotion and that pain that these kids go through just to get these kids to be kind. And that's the saddest part, gentlemen. Yeah. yeah. I, I was blessed to have a, uh, a mother and even a father, but who really drilled that in my head to go talk to the kid that nobody was talking to or child with a disability or something else. And I realized that's a norm. But what I'm wondering is the advent of the antisocial culture of of young people today because of the obsession with video games right. and not interacting socially but more one-on-one just through the video console or remotely through you know facebook or whatever else they use it seems like to me this is going to make it much much worse and they're becoming much more socially awkward i mean yeah i mean definitely the bullying and stuff like that that's gone on for a long long time it even goes up through college i mean look at the fraternities and sororities and the superficiality they promote but now it's gotten even worse because they don't even see people face to face and the, the things that are said on facebook and elsewhere are things that would have never been said in a civil society or when people within earshot so it looks like to me you're going to have to address the internet culture if you're going to have any progress in this. The internet culture is is a huge task because you're exactly right. Because these days people don't know how to have friends unless it's through a private message. Yeah. Uh, people don't know how to have friends unless they're playing somebody they don't know from another country on an Xbox game. Yeah. We have lost the art of communication. We have lost the art of speaking to people face to face. And adults are just as much as guilty. I know a couple that don't talk to each other when they're in person, but they private message each other all the time when they're not with one another. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, yeah. so, I mean, that's a huge point that you bring up because it's only getting worse. And and let me bring this up. Look at the games these kids are playing. Uh, they are the most violent games. They are disgusting. There's people being raped, shot, murdered, killing cops. What are we breeding into our children? Are we desensitizing them? What are we doing to them to allow them to play these types of, I mean, it is disgusting. And, uh, you know, for an adult, it's even kind of awkward. But for an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old to be playing a game thinking it's okay to shoot a cop, that's a problem. And that's going to create some kind of, a, of of an issue as they grow older. I mean, look at the hatred people have for police officers today. And I say to those people, get an education and go out and try to be a police officer yourself before you judge what a police officer goes through every day on the streets. You know, uh, it, there's some kind of a desensitizing that's happening today. And it, it, it's, it's extremely, extremely disturbing. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it makes me wonder just how some of the kids that are coming up now, how they're going to be, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But at the same time, I look back and I think every generation kind of says that at a certain point. But not every generation has had the just the amount of, you know, social media and technology the explosion that we have had in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. I tell you what's new, Adam, is that. Now it is new that people communicate with a handful of words and a handful of characters. What used to be very complex thoughts and very deep, lengthy conversations. Now everything is answered in just a handful of words. That is the depth of thinking now that has been cultivated on very difficult issues. And that, to me, that's 1984 has been successful now. Because the the, ba- the uh, willingness to reassess our language, to repackage it in its most simplest base terms, has been accomplished through technology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how can you keep more than a two minute attention span <laughs> with? Ma- I'm not saying all, but the majority of 
I won't even say younger people. I'll say 30-somethings in doubt these days. You, you can't hardly buy more than two or three minutes of their time. I mean, and ask about reading a book, it better be pretty exciting every five pages. Or if you're <laughs> going to watch a movie, there better be a robot stomping on a building every couple minutes. Those robots are cool. Yeah, they're worthy of our time. And maybe you could have like maybe you could have balls too. I mean, you could have that in there too. So have what? You could have balls like in the second uh, Transformers movie where one of them had balls. What? That's ridiculous. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, Rocky. We're almost out of time here, but uh, real quick, what's been like your famous, your favorite guests that so far that you've had on the show, the the ones that you've been doing recently with the special report? Oh, uh, you know, for recently, I, I'm going to have to say that yeah, you guys know who Scott Bennett is. Yeah, I, I like Scott Bennett a lot because, uh, you know, this guy comes. He's psychological operations. He comes from it. He knows exactly what's happening, and and you know, he's going against most of what he was taught to to say publicly. He's going against that because. He sees what's happening. He's not afraid to crawl in the rabbit hole. He's not afraid to call a spade a spade. Um, and he's very intelligent. And I, I very much uh, enjoy him uh, coming on the show and, and sharing his information because he, he helps open up people's eyes to the reality. Because the only thing most people see is what they see on mainstream media. And what's on mainstream media is exactly what they want you to know. Um, you got somebody like Scott who has resources throughout the world that shares information and, and kind of lightens us on the reality and the cruelty that is that is happening throughout the world. And the unfortunate part is that a lot of blood is unfortunately on our government's hands. And that that's the saddest part of it all. That's the part where I got to pinch myself and say, this can't be real. Yeah. Very interesting guest, but uh, we, we would have loved to have talked to him longer, but uh, we so our system like completely melted down. It's the most odd thing that has ever happened on this show. Right. So, right. Big brother said no. Yeah. yeah said no. Exactly. Yeah. That's how we really feel about it too. I mean, it, it could have been a fluke, but well, you know, it was funny. extremely I, I know, strange. I know we're running down, but really quick stories that uh, the uh, last week, Scotty got a hold of me. He, he wanted some information in regards to his show. So uh, it was last Monday. I go up on my computer here. I was going to pull up all my software for our streamer and, and it said uh, the the account was canceled. It was terminated. So I got a hold of my, my server company, and I'm like, well, what the hell's going on? Why is, why is this terminated? I didn't terminate nothing, right? And they said, yeah, somebody went right in through your, your host page or your, your uh, owner page, and they canceled the account. I'm like, oh. So I go up and tell my wife, and she goes, see? See, that's what you get when you call Obama a cockroach. Sooner <laughs> or later, somebody's going to come and get you. So she thought it was because I called Obama a cockroach, and he is a cockroach, but that's just the way I feel about it. <laughs> Do you mean so, that in a nice way? or <laughs> That was about as nice as I can get when I start talking about him. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Rocky, and thank you also for your support this year and uh, you guys do an amazing work you guys uh keep doing what you're doing you guys are a great show you guys are fun to listen you. to you bring good hard topics to the table and and uh, i say hats off to you guys and, and i look forward to being a guest on your 200th episode gentlemen absolutely awesome. Thanks, and i'm sure if luke were here i'm sure he'd have some off-color comment for you <laughs> i miss that guy <laughs> so do we yeah we do too. <laughs> thanks guys congratulations again you too thank you All my friends, present, pass and beyond Especially those who weren't with us too long Life is the most precious thing you can lose 
While you were here, the fun was never ending. Life a minute was only beginning. Captain Coleman Nichols, this one for you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.